Bible, the only authorized collection of the Beatles. The first two record set encompasses the Beatles 1962 through 1966. I need somebody. He's a real nowhere man. The second two record set continues with the Beatles 1967 through 1970. These incredible collections totaling 54 tunes have been selected by the Beatles. Available only on Apple Records and Tapes. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all, all of, the time. of the time. And remember... This is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, wide, widescreen, screen, screen, podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. For maybe the very first time ever, everyone, we are in the most fortuitous of positions, whereby we have had two episodes back-to-back of new Beatles content, this being the second Last time, we looked at Now and Then, the brand new and last ever Beatles single, which of course was absolutely amazing. That You know, I, I, I'm still really enjoying that song. I'm still reading from just how well it's being received. Like, so many people in my pub have actually come up to me and asked me what I thought about it, obviously, but I was shocked at how many of them responded well to it. But... That was then, and this is now. And this week, in an attempt to utterly dominate the pre-Christmas marketplace, the Beatles and Apple have followed up their latest single, which was a little mini-retrospective in its own right. You know, it featured Love Me Do, their first single, and now and then, their last single. And they followed that up with the big one, the original Beatles career retrospective. Yes, this new box set is a re-release of two albums that span their entire career. Of course, I can only be talking about the famous, the infamous, the beloved, the bemoaned, the iconic, the twinned, red and blue albums. Two albums, four discs and four CDs, and now two albums, six discs and six CDs, all containing, in theory the best and most popular of the Beatles' discography from start to finish, from 1962 to 1970, with an imperceptible gap in the middle to switch from red to blue. These albums are as iconic as they are eclectic, and a little bit strange, actually, but their position as the first ever official Beatles career retrospective means that its place in music history is firmly secured. And when I said that this was the big one, folks, I didn't mean just the fact that these are double and now triple albums. No, these are incredibly important albums within the Beatles fandom. They are some of the most off-discussed 
albums within the, the Beatle fandom. They are one of the most iconic Beatle compilations. And the story of how it came to be was way more fascinating than I ever would have expected for a Beatles compilation album. You know, there's just so much to discuss here. And so, yeah, let's not, let, you know what, Sam, cut to the chase. Being that this is the second consecutive 2023 Beatles release in a row, we're going to stick to last week's format. As per, I'm going to go through the backstory behind the original Red and Blue albums, their creation, their initial reception, their legacy, impact, artwork, all the usual and hopefully somewhat interesting stuff. And then later on, once we're all caught up, I'm going to be reviewing and detailing the new Red and Blue box set release, aka the 2023 edition. We'll talk about the song choice, how it compares to older editions, new changes, variations, what I think of it, the whole shebang. You know the drill. Nice and simple, easy peasy. Let's crack on with the show. Can buy me love. The best introduction to the Beatles. Two remastered double albums. The Red Album, 62 to 66. The Blue Album, 67 to 70. The Red Album and the Blue Album, remastered. From the Beatles. So, first of all, let us quickly ask... What are these so-called Red and Blue albums anyway? I don't remember them being in the original Beatles 12. And I know a lot of you are probably going to know the answer to this already, but it never hurts to do a little bit of revision now, does it? Originally released in 1973, the Beatles Red and Blue albums are two compilation double LPs that contain the band's entire recording history. In theory. The Red Album covers their early years, from Love Me Do, all the way up to and including Revolver. And predictably, the Blue Album covers their latter years, beginning with Strawberry Fields and ending with Let It Be. Together, they add up to a whopping 54 songs, which in total is more than a quarter of their entire discography as a band. And together, they stand as a pretty handy and unique collectible for long-term fans, and the ultimate must-have Beatle cliff notes for all those dirty casuals out there. Now, in the way that the White Album is not actually called the White Album, neither the Red or Blue Album are officially called the Red or Blue Album. Again, like the White Album, this informal, now semi-official, pair of titles derives from the colour of the respective albums. The actual full title for the Red Album is the Beatles, 1962-1966, and the Blue Album is called The Beatles, 1967-1970. So yeah, it doesn't take a linguistics expert to figure out why people go by the Red and Blue monikers instead. And henceforth, I will be referring to them as the Red and Blue Albums for this episode. And no, sadly no one has ever referred to them both together as the Purple Album, and... Not even a dick like me would start something as stupid as that. The cool thing about the Red and Blue albums conceptually is that up until this point there was no official career-spanning greatest hits album whilst they were still together as a band, making it the quote-unquote first of its kind, sort of, but again we'll get to that later. But no, Red and Blue weren't officially the first Beatles compilation albums. There had been various ones throughout the years, 
ranging from the extremely non-canon ones like The Early Beatles, The Beatles Story, and Jolly What! The Beatles and Frank Ifield on stage, all the way up to compilation albums that are like kind of semi-canon within the Beatles discography, like a collection of Beatles oldies but goldies, and the Hey Jude album that we covered recently on our Patreon page in an exclusive episode, actually. But anyway, all of these early Beatle compilation albums were still unstandardized as fuck and were very limited to regional areas. You know, there was never a mass market worldwide Beatles official compilation. And so Apple definitely saw a gap in the market there. Like all compilation albums, what these were designed to do was to make a shed load of money out of previously recorded material. It really is meant to be money for an old rope at this point, and boy oh boy, did the public buy a lot of that old rope. Being released at the height of the Beatles' post-breakup popularity, all four ex-members of the band were enjoying lucrative solo careers and topping the charts the world over, and hey, people were still hopeful that these guys might get back together, and so the public were literally frothing at the mouth for something to wet their beak or allow them to let off some of that Beatles steam. And when they were finally able to get their hands on the Red and Blue albums, people went crazy. Not Beatlemania, but a sliver of it was certainly present. And how did that impact sales? How well did this album do? Well, folks, after the dual release on the 2nd of April 1973, Yes, they did release both albums on the same day originally as well, not just subsequently. The Red Album would go straight to number one in Austria, France, Japan, Norway and Spain, number two in the Netherlands and Germany, number three in both the UK and the US, though in the US it did actually sell a million copies just from pre-sales, so you know, competition must have been fierce that month. Uh, and it also got to number four in Canada. Then... The Blue Album also somehow ended up being a number one release in Austria, France and Spain, as well as topping the US Billboard's top LP and tape chart. It also got to number two in the Netherlands and Germany once again. And in the UK and Japan, the Blue fared a little bit better than Red, moving up to the number two spot. And then we have a number three in Canada and a number four in Finland. However, as Rob Sheffield details here in an article that he wrote at the start of 2023, before these new box sets were even announced, just celebrating their anniversary, it was not the immediate success of Red and Blue that truly makes them so remarkable and memorable. He writes, The Red and Blue compilation secured the Beatles' legacy for future fans. We can argue all day about the song selections, too much magical mystery tour, not enough revolver, but... Both albums were designed to take a curious kid or casual dabbler and turn them into stark raving Beatle freaks for life. As Oasis's Noel Gallagher proclaimed in Rolling Stone, those are my favourite records because they were the first ones I ever had as a kid. So, no Red and Blue albums, folks. No Oasis. Think of that what you will. For several consecutive generations of Beatle fans, right until the proliferation of the internet, these two albums were seminal introductions to the Fabs, and for many people, it was their only exposure to the band. Like, 
this really was a popular album. And you know it was because of how cheap it was on the second-hand market until very recently. But yeah, it was so popular that even if you asked people of a certain age, you know, especially ones who aren't Beatle fans, and you talk to them about Red and Blue, not only will they recognise it and be able to describe it to you, but they will either have heard it or definitely know someone who owns it. Like, I'm really not over-egging things when I say this, folks, but I would argue that in the general public zeitgeist from, say, 1973 all the way up to the release of Beatles 1, the Red and Blue albums were as beloved, if not more beloved, than many of the Beatles' other albums. You know, to Joe Bloggs and John Doe, these are way more important than things like Rubber Soul or With the Beatles or Yellow Submarine or Let It Be. These things aren't in the zeitgeist in that way. But people know about Red and Blue. It did penetrate, it did break through into the world of the normies. And it's a fantastic display of how even post-breakup, the world is still... You know, they just love the Beatles. They cannot get enough of this product, even though it's product that they've probably more or less had before. And if they didn't own it before, they've certainly had access to it before. But even so, it still proved that the Beatles were a force to be reckoned with and the show wasn't over just because the band had broken up. And it showed that the fandom could still blossom and grow without quote-unquote new material. You know, something it's been doing for the last 53 years. And as Rob Sheffield pointed out, the most important thing that this album did was essentially fill in that gap. You know, that there, there wasn't new Beatle content coming out and they needed to stay in people's mind. They needed to stay in the zeitgeist and... Not only was this album big when it came out, but it was constantly reprinted. You know, it was put on cassette and CD right away, whenever it could be. And so Red and Blue were always around. They were always there for people just to kind of dip their toe into the world of the Beatles. You know, they were a massive band. They're a massive cultural icon. And they've got 12 albums plus singles. And that could be quite daunting. And so whilst it might not be the complete collection, it's a starting point. And at the end of the day, folks, we need normies to get into the Beatles for the fandom to survive. And so that is exactly what this album is for. It might not specifically be for us, and that's okay. Because, you know, we need butts in seats at those Beatle conventions, and albums like Red and Blue actually do more for that than any archive re-release. And let's face it, everyone, my demographic is 45 to 60 year olds for the most part and that's right in the age bracket where the Red and Blue albums would have been informative for all of you in a way that I will never truly understand. Don't worry, you have been heard, you've been recognised. I've spoken about this quite recently on the Patreon actually where we were talking about the, uh, the Beatles' Hey Jude album and what I spoke about there was the importance and significance of compilation albums in that pre-internet, pre-cassette mixtape era. And it cannot be understated when attempting to look at these releases in some context. Remember, there is no Spotify or Apple Music where you can create your own canon playlist in seconds. And so 
Not only were these compilations especially useful for fans on a budget, as it would allow them access to all of these songs in one go, you know, they, 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 they may have missed a release here or there, but it also bundles all of the songs together in a unique order for a unique experience. And that experience would have been oh so impactful back in 73 and onwards. In recent years, I've had a growing fascination with these releases, and I think a large part of that is my desire to kind of vicariously feel how vital these were for people. It would be like unlocking a window into the past, you know. Like I'd love to to feel that lack of access and that need, that desire, and then to be that person in 73 who's got an incomplete beaten collection or isn't quite a fan yet, and then to be able to experience this whole album for the first time. Oh, that would be delicious. Regardless of any feelings that I have about either of these albums as a cynical adult, I know that if I was a little upcoming fan or even, you know, someone quite deep into their Beatle fandom, I would have devoured this album. But yeah, a big part of it would have been the fact that this album has some crucial mixing variations and oddly specific extra bits of audio. That's all well and good, but the real privilege and novelty is being able to hear all of those Beatles songs in that particular arrangement, in that particular presentation. Again, the word experience I'm going to be throwing about a lot here. It is just a, such a unique collection of songs, and I just like the idea that this is a way to get into the Beatles. Like, what a titanic task that is. What a statement for an album to make. Like, you've almost got to listen to them just to see if they pull it off or not. But anyway, enough of the hypotheticals where I'm really nice. What about the reality of it all? What are my thoughts on these two albums going into this today? Well, I'm going to show my age a bit here, as I'm kind of caught in an awkward middle ground because I'm actually too young to have even been around for the 1993 CD releases. Uh, maybe I would have been aware of the, like, the 2010 CD reissues, but the problem was, folks, I just straight up had no contact with these albums whatsoever. I may have looked at a tatty old copy that a friend or family member may have had tucked away. Well, I, ne I never played a copy at all. And by the time I really start getting into the Beatles properly, my dad already had his entire iPod full of classic Beatles music, out of order. And then my friend Tom filled my iPod Nano with the Beatles collection in order. And so by the time I'm getting into vinyl, I really wasn't in need of the songs in a like a vinyl collection like that. You know, I had the, the discography the majority of the discography on vinyl, so I had all the songs there, and I had the whole discography digitally. The track listings that I did see didn't stir me whatsoever, and I could make my own playlists on my iPod, and by this time anyway, the red and blue were perfectly standardized, and so, you know, there's no songs that I don't already have access to, and there's no, like, unique takes or mixes or anything. So there really wasn't anything to make me buy it on vinyl or CD. 
and it wasn't until this 2023 box set came out that I actually picked up a copy of either red or blue. Or listened to either of them in full, actually. This is uh, how virginal this episode is. And folks, after all of that, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get to is... I was just born too late. I was born too late to ever truly appreciate the red and blue experience. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I want to vicariously feel what you guys felt, I just never am. You know, outside of these new 2023 sets, the red and blue albums have offered me nothing and really will offer me nothing. And yet, I'm still drawn to them. I think they're really, really cool. And it's not like they never caught my imagination whatsoever, because something that I've got a lot of memories of enjoying is the artwork and the photography on this album, these albums, because those two images, for me at least, were the real takeaways, and I still think they rank amongst the very best of Beatle imagery. Like, it's just so striking, it's so cool to see them side by side, and I always remember that being the coolest part of that album for me in my early fandom. So when I found out that there was going to be a 2023 re-release, remaster, remix, thingy, mabob, whatever you want to call it, of these albums, I was a little hesitant to get all that excited. And this brings me back to what I thought was going to be the key issue going into these 2023 re-releases. And with all compilation albums in the modern era, really, and that is the issue of streaming, downloadable music, and customised playlists. Because they've made compilations like this irrelevant. Like, we can all appreciate the fact that these albums were important back in the day, but why the hell would Apple be re-releasing them to a world where even the oldest members of society are streaming their own personalised playlists? I mean, it would be different if maybe this was rarities or anthology, whereby there are some unique takes or mixes of the song. Like, I don't mean, like, updated 2023 mixes, but I mean, like, a, a different take or something equally as out there, I guess. But if it's just the songs that we're going to have on the regular albums and on the regular archive re-releases, then why do you need this particular compilation outside of just buying it out of brand loyalty. But yeah, it's always nice to have these songs presented in a new way, in a new order. But again, it's nothing that you can't access and make yourself, or as in the case with most people, with their own opinions, make it better and to your own tastes. So initially I was sceptical as to whether I was even going to be purchasing this set at all. But as we know by now, Apple is well-versed in how to resell the same content every few years by offering something slightly new. And thus, this re-release was no different. I mean, fair play, and credit where credit is due to Apple Core, because they actually did make me care about, and genuinely get excited for, buying copies of two double albums that before I had little to no interest in buying at all. And they weren't cheap either. So how exactly did they do it? How did they con me? Well, first of all, like the rest of the Beatles discography, 
whenever it's re-released. The Red and the Blue albums are another great excuse to update a song or two, or even a whole boatload of them at once to bring them up to date to the current music standards. In 93, both albums were re-released on CD. They were cleaned up a lot there. It was a big selling point then. And it was also a selling point in 2010 where they were cleaned up even more so. And now, with these 2023 re-releases, we have all of this new machine-assisted learning slash mal AI technology involved. This means that all of the songs that did not have a new mix, i.e. one that was part of an archive re-release, well, they were going to get the new Mal AI treatment. This meant that any song that had not already had an archive re-release mix, like most of the Red Album for example, they would get brand new mixes to the quality that we saw in both Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back and The Revolver set. So already going into this album, around half if not more of the content was going to be brand new 2023 high-tech mixes with all of that machine learning separation and demixing and just that alone for any Beatles song, no matter where it comes in the timeline, is straight up exciting. But if we're going to expand on that a little, because most of these new mixes would have been the early material, because the early material hasn't had archive re-releases, well then, that would mean that this album is essentially a taster, a starter, and a moose-bouche for possible future archive re-releases. You know, we've only got up to Revolver so far, and so the prospect of hearing Girl or Please Please Me to that level of audio fidelity was always going to make me pick up a copy. And let's even expand further. These archive re-releases might not happen. You know, we might not get Please Please Me to Rubber Soul. And so the prospect of this potentially being the only place where I could hear a 2023 demixed version of Girl or Please Please Me further cemented my decision to buy it. And, you know, expanding on the expansion, all of the Beatles archive re-releases that we've seen so far have featured at least one or two unique editing or mixing choices within the album somewhere, be they big changes like on the Sgt. Pepper one or small ones like on the White Album. But still, that's always a tantalizing prospect for losers such as myself. Then we have the fact that we have two discs of bonus material. Yeah, I can't deny that that is an incredibly powerful, bold statement and move on Apple's part. Like, it instantly challenges me not to buy it in a way, because how can I turn down a quote-unquote new version of Red and Blue with quote-unquote new songs? What is so thrilling about this move is that they, and by they I mean Apple and the Beatles, have actually gone back quite clearly and listened to the fan criticism of the original albums and are actually trying to redress the imbalances by including a bonus disc of material. Wisely, they made that bonus disc unavailable separately, and so yet another nail went into my red and blue wallet coffin. Like, they've essentially removed the biggest criticism about the album and then represented it to you anew. It's like when a kid gives a teacher some bad homework or coursework and they say, look, I'm not going to grade it now, it's really bad. Take it home, 
give it to me again in the morning and we'll see how it fares. And we are now seeing that with red and blue. It's going from a C, C minus to a solid A. And that is so compelling for me as a Beatles fan. Like, you all know that I am obsessed and spend far too much time musing over what-if albums and stuff like that. And now, after, you know, 50 years of people wondering about what we could have done about the Red Album, what we could have done about the Blue Album, sans now and then, Apple has come out now and basically said, these are all the songs that would have gone on had you know, certain parties not been involved. Of course, there was all the hype around now and then, and that certainly helped tip the scale with me buying this, because literally I was already on the Beatles web store to buy now and then, and right next to it was this box set. And there was definitely a, oh well, while I'm here, element to it all. And finally, I must confess to the shallowest of reasons as to why I bought this particular box set, and it's because of the coloured vinyl. The red album has red vinyl, the blue album has blue vinyl. Need I explain any further? So yeah, in quite a short span of time, I went from a real doubting Thomas to being actually quite hyped for this release. I was hoping that this would be the chance for me to finally get red and blue. And if I didn't, then at least I'd have some cool vinyls and some hopefully witty hot takes to walk away with for this episode. But still, what is so nice is that I was truly able to go into these albums with the best frame of mind. I was prepared to not be boorish and pessimistic and meet the material on its own level. And of course, this was the best way for me to experience the album. And before we start the hard, cold facts section of this episode, let me just say thank you to Apple. Yeah, genuinely, no irony whatsoever. I appreciate Apple here for going all out and going beyond the call of duty on this release because if this was just a straight up new mix in the vein of the archive re-releases that came out before get back and the mal ai software then i would just not have given a shit in the way that the best remakes expand upon a movie this re-release has expanded upon the original Red and Blue, both in terms of its track listing and its audio fidelity. And thank God it did, because it got me to buy the album, and I ended up having an incredible Beatle-based experience with it. Anywho, that was my brief introduction to the basics of the Red and Blue albums, as well as some of my thoughts going into this release, slash these releases in 2023. And now that we're done with the pleasantries and my own waffling is done, we can now focus on the facts as we move into the backstory and the history behind these two colour-coded compilations. Let's roll. Now, for the first time, the Beatles' greatest hits on two double CD collections, Red and Blue. Check them out. Right, on to the backstory, and I can hear a lot of you out there being audibly bemused by even the very concept of a compilation album, albums, having a substantial backstory at all is ludicrous, right? Well, 
This is the Beatles we're talking about now, folks. And so one must always expect the unexpected and who'd have thunk it? But yeah, actually, the backstory behind the Red and Blue albums are as interesting as they are incredibly convoluted. However, it does mean that we get to touch on one of my very favourite Beatle-related topics, and that is the wonderful world of bootlegs. Yes, folks, bootlegs, you know what they are, right? They are illegal recreations of copyrighted material designed to be sold at a fraction of the price, only for the money not to go back to the original manufacturer or artist. Now, if that bootlegged item is like a Bart Simpson t-shirt, fuck it, it's Fox, no one gets hurt. But in regards to music, whilst bootlegs do keep money out of the hands of record labels, which is very, very good, it also keeps money out of the hands of musicians, which is very, very bad. Either way, there's loads of types of bootlegs, each with their own different market that they're after. You know, you've got recreations, replicas and fakes. They are there to dupe the rubes. You've got alternate material, like new track listings, different takes and mixes that have been illegally sourced. And then you've got unreleased material. Again, illegally sourced, but it would be you know, hot hits and cold cuts kind of material. But anyway, why am I talking about bootlegs, folks? Well, as it turns out, the bootleg industry was entirely responsible for the creation of the Red and Blue albums. It was entirely reactionary. Apple was not paving the way in the way that they kind of make out in their own spiel with the Red and Blue albums. No, they were definitely following a different trailblazer. I'm sorry, folks, if any of you were hoping for a creative spark or insightful backstory behind the genesis of this project, but welcome to the real world, because it simply did not work that way. It's nothing personal. It's just business. And the mafia jokes are not at all incidental, for in 1972, a small company in New Jersey called Audio Tape Inc. brazenly flaunted copyright statutes and sold a huge four disc slash two eight track bootleg set of well-known, kinda random, but mostly popular Beatles songs together for the first time. Ever since I can remember, I wanted to make Beatles bootlegs. I know I'd go from rags to return. The outfit was so large and so seemingly legitimate that not only did they even start advertising this Beatle collection on television, radio and in print, but there were also two sequel compilation collections released due to popular demand. Now, I can't guarantee if any Italian Americans in waste management were involved, but this does sound like a soprano moneymaker if I ever heard one. Hey, T, we gotta get these fucking Beale records out there. What the fuck you talking about, Chrissy? Hey, Tom, you know, they're very popular. It's legal. But yeah, considering that this collection had over 60 Beatles songs, including several contemporaneously current solo Beatle tracks, its title of Alpha and Omega was truly fitting. The title is in reference to the Greek alphabet, with Alpha being the start and Omega being the end. 
with this phrase most famously showing up in the Bible when God says in Revelations, I am the Alpha and Omega. This means that, in theory, this is meant to span their entire official discography, but you know, it also references the whole bigger than Jesus thing, which I kind of like. It's a great title, it sells the idea perfectly. And on these albums, the tracks themselves were arranged more or less in alphabetical order, though some were mixed around just so they would fit on the disc. Not only that, but that editing is all over the place. Like, for example, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band track fades out just before the Billy Shears introduction on the With A Little Help From My Friends song. And that track doesn't follow Pepper's, it appears on an entirely separate disc. And the 8-track was even worse, with two songs being cut in half to fit them on, meaning that you wouldn't be able to hear them all the way through. You'd have to take it out and flip it over. And that would be somewhat forgivable with a long song like Hey Jude. Like, okay, that's expected. But the other bisected track is the 2 minute and 4 second long Babies in Black. I mean, what the fuck? Let's just quickly run through this set, though. Alpha and Omega. On record one, we had Act Naturally, All I've Gotta Do, All My Loving, and I Love Her, Babies in Black, Yesterday, The Ballad of Don and Yoko, and Bangladesh Live. And that's the solo George song. There's not a song called Bangladesh by the Beatles that you haven't heard of, don't panic. On side two of record one, we have Come By Me Love, Come Together, Day Tripper, Do You Want To Know A Secret, Eight Days A Week, Eleanor Rigby, and Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, although it's just titled as Uncle Albert. Then record two, side one, we have I Should Have Known Better, It Won't Be Long, I Want To Hold Your Hand, but it's written as I Want To Hold Your Hand, Lady Madonna, Ticket To Ride, Lucy In The Sky With Diamonds, Michelle and Mr. Moonlight. Then we have on record two, side four, I Feel Fine, If I Fell, I'll Be Back, Hey Jude, I'm A Loser, I'm Happy Just To Dance With You, and I saw her standing there. On record three, we have Nowhere Man, Obladi, Oblada, Paperback Writer, Penny Lane, Help, Rollover Beethoven, She's a Woman, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Then on record three, side two, we have Get Back, Hello Goodbye, Revolution One, Here Comes the Sun, I'll Follow the Sun, and Honey Don't. Then record four, side one, we have We Can Work It Out, with a little help from my friends, Yellow Submarine, Baby You're a Rich Man, You Can't Do That, You've got to hide your love away. Maybe I'm amazed and a hard day's night. Then finally on record four, side two, we have She Loves You, Something, Strawberry Fields, Tell Me Why, The Long and Winding Road, Let It Be. And we end this whole set with everybody's trying to be my baby. A very unique choice there. But yeah, thrown into the middle of all that, we had Bangladesh, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, and Maybe I'm Amazed. No solo John, no solo Ringo. Very interesting there indeed. But if you think that the audio problems stop there, the recordings themselves were all sourced from the American Capital LPs featuring all of the Dave Dexter Jr. edits found exclusively on those albums, meaning that every song would have a charmingly unique mixture of compression, bass reduction, and additional reverb. I literally mentioned this on the last episode, actually, but copies of copies always produce even poorer results. And since those Capital Masters were edits uh, you know, of second, third, and even fourth generation reels from EMI, the quality of the recordings on Alpha and Omega must have been, 
well, something. But still, what do people expect for that price? The set was advertised for $13.95 for four records and the commercial guaranteed delivery. It was an amazing price for such a huge amount of music. But since audio taping wasn't paying any royalties to Apple or the Beatles, it was easy to sell it so cheaply. I mean, we own the joint. But wait, I can hear some of you musing. Surely Apple and the full might of the British phonographic recording industry must have come down harsh on these mooks and ubats, right? I mean, these guys aren't even a real family, more like a jumped-up crew. And here they are making some serious Somalis. I mean, what the fuck is going on here? Well, as it turns out, prior to 1972, somehow, sound recordings were not subject to federal copyright in the United States of America. They were, instead, subject to wildly varying applicable state torts and statutes. The Sound Recording Amendment of 1971 extended federal copyright to recordings fixed on or after February 15, 1972, the effective start date of the Act, and declared that recordings fixed before that date would remain subject to state or common law copyright. Those statutes, as they existed in New Jersey, where Audio Tape Inc. was based, were coincidentally comparatively lax. And restricting the sale to set mail order ensured that we could continue to hide our business behind pirate-friendly laws. The federal law was basically untested, and basically there was no career-spanning Beatles compilation on the market, official or not. The Beatles Alpha and Omega tested the boundaries of new laws as it met demand for a product people wanted. So if Apple wasn't going to do it, then fuck it, we would. Well, considering that Apple has more lawyers than an entire law firm, it shouldn't be a surprise to find out that they were likely not being inactive or stupid with this whole Alpha and Omega thing, but were instead biding their time until it was legally apt to strike with true ferocity. And that time to strike would come one day later. On February 16th, Beatles manager Alan Klein filed a lawsuit on behalf of George Harrison, Capitol Records and Apple Records against Audio Tapes Inc., ABC and various other local affiliates who had aired the commercials for $15 million in damages and to end the sales and distribution of the set immediately. Said other affiliates were removed from the suit as they agreed to stop airing the ads though it is unknown how the case was truly settled, because whilst the case still does appear in court records, all of the documents attached to it are spuriously missing. Though, rather fascinatingly, the suit did claim that the Beatles had earned collectively $19 million in royalties since September 1969 and the day they filed the claim. So yeah, it's not like they weren't making any money and Audio Tape Inc. were taking it all from them, but it did prove how valuable their market share was and how vital it was to protect it. Of course, we do need to point out that the fracas surrounding this release also directly parallels McCartney's own bootleg woes in regards to the release of Wings Over America because that album was also created as a direct response to a very popular multi-disc bootleg. Though I'm not sure if Alpha and Omega ever came with coloured vinyl though. It's also a shame that none of the uh, Hot Hits and Cold Cuts projects were ever spurred into creation as a response to all of the bootlegs surrounding that project, 
but alas, it was not meant to be. Right, is everyone thoroughly depressed enough at the state of affairs here? Like, not only do we have a bunch of grubby bootleggers on one end, but we have a bunch of greedy money men at Apple on the other, with no artistic merit or flair to be seen. Like, it's not like any of the ex-Beatles had a burning desire to do this album, and seemingly the only innovations here are Apple's and EMI's ability to see a moneymaker, savage their competitors, and make a quick buck. And when I say quick buck, I truly mean it. Because once the whole Alpha and Omega thing was settled, it really highlighted and identified something for Apple. Not that there were bootleggers out there making loads of money, but that there was a demand for a Beatles double LP career retrospective collection thingy mabob. And within the fucking year, EMI would release their own double LP Beatles career retrospective collection thingy mabob, aka the Red and Blue albums, aka 1962 to 66 and 1967 to 70. Also, just to make sure that people knew that these were the real, real, real legit ones, ads for the collections uh, and all of the posters make regular mention that these were the only official authorised collections of the group's music, as did all of the inserts with the album, that kind of thing. Yes, we were now going to get official Beatles career-spanning compilations. And, oh my gosh, that's crazy. What a prospect. How are they going to choose the right songs, though? What are they going to include in these sets? Well, let's find out. So, it goes without saying that these are Beatles albums, right? They're on the front cover, they play all the songs, and you would have thought that maybe the Beatles would have had some insight in choosing the songs to best represent their own career from start to finish, right? WRONG! You are incredibly wrong, you fool! No, the person in charge of selecting the songs for Red and Blue was the man who spearheaded the lawsuit with Audio Tapes Inc. in the first place. The Beatles' then-manager, Alan Klein. The most feared promoter in the world, Ron DeKlein. DeKlein had a reputation as a hard man. His only weak spot was dishonesty. Anyone was free to inspect his books, but no one could find his accounts. He struck terror into the hearts of his subordinates. People would commit suicide rather than meet him. In business, his left hand never knew who his right hand was doing. Nasty adored him. He was a man after his own wallet. Klein promised the Ruttles 
that if they let him take care of their royalties, they would never have to worry about money again. Yeah, we never really get much chance to talk about Klein on this show, especially since we've left the 70s behind many episodes ago. But yeah, he's the big boogeyman in this particular period in the McCartney narrative, as well as the Beatle one. And here in 73, he's deeply embedded with everything going on. And hey, if the album was purely for the money, then I guess like in Lennon's own logic, then it would make sense that the money man himself would be selecting the songs. And hey, he's their manager, so it's not like he's going to make any decisions that would ultimately hurt the album in the long run in the pursuit of the short term, right? Wrong! You are incredibly wrong, you fool! No, Klein had a bucket load of brilliant ideas for this album, and by brilliant, I mean financially beneficial, because there does not seem to be a single possible potential opportunity that Klein did not exploit in some way. And so, the following steps were taken to ensure maximum returns in the short run, with no consideration for posterity. The first was to primarily focus on hit singles, and in some cases popular B-sides with double A-sides thrown in there. Although the specific term hit would be stipulated by Klein himself, and largely, if not solely focus on US and UK hits. Secondly, there would be no covers included at all on this album. This meant that every single song included would make more money for Klein and the label rather than having to give money to other songwriters. Then we have the general quote-unquote rule concepts around the album that aren't really rules, but you know they're part of the overall plan, and I will take them into consideration, especially when putting together wish lists. Obviously, the discography is going to be broken down into two double albums or four discs, one for their first four years and one for their last four years. There's a nice even split there. There was going to be no minimum or maximum requirement for each album, singer or songwriter to be represented. You know, this wasn't going to be one of those sets where it's three Paul, three John, one George, one Ringo, three Paul, three John, one George, one Ringo. They were just going to go for the hits and the popular songs that weren't covers. Then we get a divergence from the Alpha and Omega sets as no solo material would be used in this collection and that really does make sense actually because that would be a rights nightmare and this is a Beatles set, not a solo Beatles set. Um, the album would also be sequenced in true chronological order of release so things like Get Back and Don't Let Me Down would appear way before the Let It Be album as they should. Also, there would be album tracks included, but only where necessary to fill up time appropriately and make certain other songs make sense. Like, you can't have With A Little Help From My Friends without Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. You know what I mean. Now, these general rules would have several side effects that, even if Klein was aware of, he didn't care enough to remedy. The first and most glaring issue caused here is the fact that all of Ringo and George's early appearances were not on singles and were largely covers. That means that on the Red Album, George has no lead vocal whatsoever and Ringo is limited only to Yellow Submarine, that album closer. Then there is the idea that a large majority of the Beatles' best material was never released as a single. This means huge swathes of their career is at unfair risk of being sidelined because they were not, nor never could be, 
a quote-unquote hit. This also matters for covers too. Like, it doesn't matter for tracks like Mr. Moonlight or Dizzy Miss Lizzy, but for songs like Twist and Shout, Roll Over Beethoven, and Long Tall Sally, it is. Suddenly, we're now cutting out major parts of the Fab's early career. Also, the chronological aspect of this album also makes sequencing quite difficult, in the sense that you're having to go with history rather than maybe what flows naturally or makes for a better experience. But by far, the biggest issue that we come to with this album, the one that is most oft-discussed whenever it comes up, is the issue of fair representation across the albums. I mean, that's the thing that always kind of put me off this collection in the first place. Not only is there no attempt to give somewhat of an even spread of their career in this career retrospective, but even its own inconsistencies are inconsistent. I mean, let's just break down the numbers here for a second. Please Please Me has three songs, two of which are single A-sides. With the Beatles has only one song, which was a non-UK single. A Hard Day's Night, again, only has three songs, two of which were singles. Beatles for Sale has only one song, a single. Help has four tracks, a little better, three of them are singles. Rubber Soul, for some reason, gets six songs, five of which for some reason are album tracks with only one single in Nowhere Man, although Michelle and Girl and maybe even Drive My Car were like European releases somewhere. But again, these albums focus on the US and UK canons. Then we come to Revolver, which controversially only has two songs on this career retrospective. The double A-side single is the only thing included, that is Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine, with none of the album's defining traits being represented at all. Rather predictably, Sgt. Pepper has a fair representation with four songs, and it is worth noting again that none of these are singles because it's Sgt. Pepper. Then the Magical Mystery Tour EP has a total of three tracks, or four depending on how you count Hello, Goodbye. Then, in another of Klein's widely lamented controversial moves, the 30-31 songs on the White Album gets parred down to just three songs, none of which were singles. Then on Yellow Submarine, we get absolutely bupkiss. Then with Let It Be, we have three songs, two of which were proper singles, and the other one was a re-recording of a previous single for the World Wildlife Foundation. And for Abbey Road, we get four songs, one of which was a single. In terms of the single album divide, uh, disc one has no album tracks on either side. Disc two, side one, has three album tracks. Disc two, side two, has another three. Disc three, side one, has all four of the Pepper ones. Disc three, side two, has one album track again. Disc 4, side 1, has three album tracks, all from the White Album. And finally, disc 4, side 2, has another three. This means that only 17 songs across the collection weren't singles, leaving a total of 37 tracks that were. This leans, again, more towards this being a greatest hits than a true retrospective. But you could argue that it is hard not to do a greatest hits album when the Beatles have so many iconic hits. Anyway, let's move on to the original lineup for the Red and Blue albums. I'll blaze through them again as quick as I can. 
on the Red Album, Disc 1, Side 1, we have Love Me Do, Please Please Me, From Me To You, She Loves You, I Want To Hold Your Hand, All My Loving and Can't Buy Me Love. For Side 2, we have A Hard Day's Night and I Love Her, Eight Days A Week, I Feel Fine, Ticket To Ride and Yesterday. For the Red Album, Disc 2, Side 1, we have Help, You've Gotta Hide Your Love Away, We Can Work It Out, Day Tripper, Drive My Car and Norwegian Wood. Then for Side 2, we have Nowhere Man, Michelle, In My Life, Girl, Paperback Writer, Eleanor Rigby, and Yellow Submarine. Then for the Blue Album, Disc 1, Side 1, we have Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, With a Little Help From My Friends, Lucy in the Sky With Diamonds, A Day in the Life, and All You Need Is Love. For Side 2, we have I'm the Walrus, Hello Goodbye, The Fool on the Hill, Magical Mystery Tour, Lady Madonna, Hey Jude, and Revolution. Then for the Blue Album, Disc 2, Side 1, we have Back in the USSR, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Obladi Obladar, Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, The Ballad of John and Yoko, and Old Brown Shoe. And then finally, for the Blue Album, Disc 2, Side 2, we have Here Comes the Sun, Come Together, Something, Octopus's Garden, Let It Be, Across the Universe, and The Long and Winding Road. Of course, as you heard there, if you did the maths in your head as you went along, the Red Album was and is still significantly shorter than the Blue Album. Now, we'll see this a lot with these albums, whereby Klein and later Apple are reluctant to take advantage of the fact that the Beatles' earlier career had shorter songs, aka by adding extra songs to make up for the time. I mean, again, let's just quickly blaze through this. Uh, The Red Album, Disc 1, Side 1, 15 minutes 30, then the other side is 15.25, Red Album Disc 2, Side 1 is 14.09, and uh, Side 2, you know, moving more into the middle era, is 17 minutes 30 seconds. For the Blue Album Disc 1, Side 1, 24 minutes 19 seconds, Side 2, 26 minutes 47, Uh, Blue Album Disc 2, Side 1, 23.52, and then Side 2, 24.42. The numbers don't lie. Now, of course, we're all just going to accuse Apple of being stingy as per... But they do supposedly have their own logic, which was brought to the forefront when this album was re-released in the 90s. So when it was re-released in the 90s, it was two CDs in one like clamshell box. And that made sense for the Blue Album, because it's it's much longer, you know, it's pushing 50 minutes for each one. But still, for the Red Album, they charged everyone the same price. Even though the Red Album is significantly shorter with the same amount of songs, it still costs the same as the Blue Album. And despite the fact that the Red Album could fit on one disc, it was put onto two. And apparently it's because they don't want to create like an imbalance between the albums. So even though the album is unbalanced inherently in terms of time, they care more about the number of tracks, the number of names on the back of the album That's what they're more concerned with. And, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, I do like the idea that Love Me Do is the same value for money and worth as Hey Jude. That is a wonderful little precedent. But then you actually go back and check out the numbers and the Red Album is still two songs shorter than the Blue One. So now we have less songs and less runtime, making the Blue Album not only the album with the most 
contemporaneous music on it, but it's also the longer album and it's also the better value for money item. I mean, Jesus Christ, they could have just added two extra songs for the 1993 edition and it would have been given us a little bone. You know what I mean? I think it would have dodged a little bit of criticism. Maybe it would have invited more. Who knows? But what two songs would I have added to Red in 1993? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Okay, well, I'd like to think I'd be cool and pick two songs that weren't added to the recent 2023 edition of the album, but they largely got it right in terms of what was missing. Maybe they went a little bit too far in other places, but we'll get to that later. So, yeah, my two picks would have instinctively been I saw her standing there for disc one, side one, maybe like song four. And secondly, I would have ended disc two with Tomorrow Never Knows and bump one of the Rubber Soul tracks, maybe like Nowhere Man, onto disc two, side one instead. Anyway, now that we know this track listing inside and out, is it a complete mess or what? Well, the only thing I will say in defense of Klein, and fuck me, I never thought I'd be saying that, but yeah, I will admit that he did have a gargantuan task in front of him, and he didn't do the worst job ever in the time that he did it. The problem was, and still is, is that The Beatles canon and fandom is so impossibly large that even getting it down to two double albums is always going to guarantee that not everyone was going to be happy with the final result. Even if Klein was a genuine mega fan and, you know, he he knew all the tracks inside and out and all the mixes and he had his finger on the pulse in terms of the fandom, there were always going to be sinful omissions. Most if not all of them being album tracks and minor B-sides, things that the fans love. But yeah, either way, every one of you has a different Beatle headcanon, and so the project would always be kind of doomed from the start. I think it's naive to think that, oh, well, if the Beatles were all involved, then it would have been perfect, and there would have been six Revolver songs, and the White Album would have been fairly represented, and blah, 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 blah. I'm not so sure. And... The fact of the matter is, is that most Beatles fans actually do love the majority, if not all of the Beatles' back catalogue anyway. Which means that even if they don't give their full seal of approval on the track listing, they're still going to enjoy whatever is included in the set. So the only real crime is one of omission, and there really are worse crimes than that in this world. Also, we cannot forget as Robert Sheffield detailed earlier, as I spoke about, the majority of people out there, and still the majority of people actually buying Beatle records, are not super fans. You know, they're the real target demo. I mean, fuck, to be a casual Beatle fan, this album really is going to be impactful and life-defining. We've spoken about this, but to the hardcore fan, yeah, it doesn't really do much at all. However, we as fans have to answer for ourselves because there are probably a lot of us out there who have bought the new 2023 set or even bought the 1973 or various re-releases despite not particularly liking the album but because we're Beatles fans and because we buy everything anyway. So (laughs) there's two built-in markets there. What I also want to point out though and reinforce here is that Red and Blue was released in the year 
of our Lord, 1973. The year of Redra Speedway, Band on the Run, Mind Games, Living in the Material World, and the Ringo album. And so, to claim that there was any true official Beatle canon at this point is plain old inaccurate. You know, it's easy to look back at the Red and Blue albums in the wake of dozens of future releases and after the Beatles canon has been established and re-established, largely by parties not under the yoke of Apple. And, you know, we can laugh at its song selection for being odd or lacking, but the idea of creating a Beatles compilation had never been officially done before, and so there is nothing to compare it to. In hindsight, the absence of Revolver tracks is a little more forgivable when you consider that Revolver would not have its widely recognised re-evaluation for decades to come. You know, we're judging Red and Blue by modern standards here. And it's not like this notion was hidden from the public or anything, as they even address it in the album liner notes for the Red Album. These are written by Bill Flanagan. They state... The Beatles never had a career-spanning best-of or greatest hits. In a very real sense, all of their LPs were greatest hits albums anyway. They had more hit singles than could fit on even a double album. And to complicate things, some of the group's most important songs, A Day in the Life, The Fool on the Hill, and in England, even yesterday, were not released as singles. The Red and Blue albums had to tell the Beatles' story in a limited time, necessarily leaving out many big songs whilst conveying a sense of the whole history of the group. Furthermore, in hindsight, again, you could argue that some of the great omissions on this set could be seen as purposeful waypoints, markers, invitations of mystery to the listener. You know, if you only include three songs from a 30-plus song double album, then you are piquing people's curiosities and they might actually go out and buy the album, you know? Still, my final word on Klein is that, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, at least he did it and stuck to his guns. I personally think, in the long run, that his decision to use any rules at all for this selection, even if they were whack, was still better than no plan at all, which does give both double albums their own internal, warped sense of logic and cohesion. Like, the best way to put these albums into context, I guess, would be that they are the Gospels of the Beatles, according to Alan Klein. These are his personal favourites, and this is his personal Spotify playlist. And because it is Klein, there is no difference between songs that were profitable and songs that were good. So, at the very least, what we get is a pure and consistent set of batshit crazy decisions. Also, like me, clearly Klein has a bit of a thing for Rubber Soul. Like, oh my god, so many album tracks. What the heck was going on here? Was he seeing it ahead into the future? Did he know the way things were going? Still, it's baffling that it is the most represented album on a Beatle compilation. Wow. On top of all of this, though, folks, creating any canon, any Beatle canon, any established set of opinions, be they good or bad ones, was always going to be a worthwhile endeavour. It was always going to be worth creating. And yeah, of course that canon has 
since largely been supplanted by new tastes and standards, but by Klein taking the first plunge into the depths and subsequently struggling to tread water, it formed a base-level bedrock foundation from which all endless fandom and canon discussions within Beetledom could be had. Like, so many opinions about Beetle compilations and Beetle playlists and uh, post-Beetle releases all go back to Red and Blue. These really are patient zero in a lot of conversations. At the end of the day, these two albums are just now one of many different ways to experience the Beatles, to be introduced to the Beatles, or even expand your burgeoning Beatle knowledge. Whilst the Red and Blue albums may have had a demotion from the de facto only way to get into them to being just one of many ways, it still doesn't take away from the fact that it's still just as legitimate as any other way to experience this music. Is it likely that future generations will use this album to become, as Rob Sheffield put, crazed Beatleheads? No, of course not. The new 2023 versions supersede them entirely, and the streaming versions still supersede that. But, and this is a big Sir Mix-a-Lot but, the impact and the legacy of the original Red and Blue albums in the ongoing Beatles story can never be understated, underrepresented, or undervalued. Well, yeah, they can be a bit of a punching bag from time to time, and until the re-releases, they really haven't been a part of the conversation all that actively. But they walked so that Anthology, One, Past Masters, and Rarities could run. I'm not saying that Red and Blue are war heroes or anything, folks, but they are veterans, and they should be respected as such. Of course, now that all of those songs have been discussed to death, we can now discuss the differences between the international versions of the album. Yes, we are dedicating some time to this, folks, because this is a major Beatles release, so therefore, of course, there are going to be loads of variations from across the pond. I mean, I don't know why this was the case. The Beatles releases had more or less coalesced, for both territories since Sgt. Pepper's. And whilst I get that this is before the official canonization of the discography with the CD releases the next decade, but still, it feels like Apple was simply creating differences just so collectors would have two versions to buy and have something to talk about. Something we'll be talking about when we get to the 2023 versions as well. Now, whilst there was no difference between the track listings, between the two international versions, like say on the Rarities album, the mixes are still all over the place. Starting off, we have the differences between the 73 release of the Red album, with From Me To You, both variants use the official 1963 fake stereo mix from a collection of Beatles oldies, but on the US release, the channels are swapped, the left and right channels are swapped, so say if the guitars were on the right, they'd be on the left on the US one. For She Loves You, the US version used the 66 re-equalised mono version from a collection of Beatles oldies, whereas the UK version simply used a fake stereo of the same take. On to I Want To Hold Your Hand. For the US one, we have the first appearance of a fake stereo mix from Meet The Beatles, and in the UK, it was another fake stereo mix from a collection of Beatles oldies. 
with A Hard Day's Night, both used official 1964 mixes from the album, but the US one had a mono mix and the UK had a stereo one. Then we have I Feel Fine, which uses a 1964 mono mix with additional reverb taken from Beatles 65. And for the UK version, we have another collection of Beatles Oldies mono mix, which includes the unique two second long whispering intro. For Ticket to Ride, like A Hard Day's Night, they both use the mix from the final album, but the US one is mono and the UK one is stereo. Then with Help, both variations use the stereo mix from the final album, but the US version has the quote-unquote James Bond-style intro from the US Help soundtrack. Then with We Can Work It Out, the US one used the 1965 stereo mix from Yesterday and Today, whereas the UK one would use the 1966 stereo mix from a collection of Beatles oldies. And finally, with Paperback Writer and Just Like From Me To You, they both use the same mix, the 1966 stereo one, but once more, the left and right channels are swapped around for some reason. And then on the Blue Album, we had less variations, but it's still just as curious. Starting off with Strawberry Fields Forever, and the US version used the older 1966 stereo mix, whilst in the UK, we, we got the newer 1971 stereo mix. For Penny Lane and Hello Goodbye, the UK versions used their stereo mixes, 71 and 67 respectively, but on the US, they use mono mixes and present them in fake stereo. Then, with A Day in the Life, I was under the assumption that it always included the clean mix, i.e. without the crossfade edit from Sgt. Pepper's reprise, but no, the original vinyl releases on both sides of the pond featured the crossfade, and it wasn't the clean mix. Like, ugh, that is disgusting. And so it wouldn't be until the CD version that we got the quote-unquote clean mix, which is actually the one from the Imagine Films soundtrack album. For I'm the Walrus, they both use each country's own respective stereo mix, but the US intro is four beats long, as opposed to the six beats on the UK one. For Get Back, they both use the superior George Martin produced single mix, though in the US album liner notes, they incorrectly state it to be the album version. This is actually the single's album debut, funnily enough. And finally, and very interestingly indeed, for the Spanish edition of the Blue Album, the Ballad of John and Yoko is replaced with One After 909. Why? Because the Ballad of John and Yoko was banned in Spain for its references to Gibraltar, the disputed territory in Spain that like has England and Spain at each other's throats all the time. Um, yeah, that was apparently so controversial that the one after 909, that classic, had to replace the Ballad of John and Yoko. A very odd choice indeed. I'm not sure why it wasn't like I've Got a Feeling or something like that. Anything else from Let It Be, but nope, one after 909. Very interesting indeed. And finally, when the Red and Blue albums were released again on CD, after the catalogue was standardised, there were again a couple of changes. Uh, the first four tracks on the CD release were in mono, the rest were all in stereo, all derived from original UK mixes. However, All My Loving, Can't Buy Me Love, A Hard Day's Night, and I Love Her, and Eight Days a Week all made their CD stereo debut with, with this release, all with mixes done in stereo uh, back in 87. Also, any variations at this point were now officially stamped out. 
like the whispering mix was removed from I Feel Fine and the Bond intro was cut from Help. Though, apparently, the first wave of CDs also featured a supposed glitch that then had to be taken out of a future re-release when the standards were all brought up again. Apparently, the audio of Daytripper drops out quicker than intended towards the end, and that wasn't actually fixed until 2010. So yeah, baby steps, baby steps, folks. But yeah, those were all the variations I could find with all of the red and blue releases. And now after I've done all of that, I just quickly want to discuss the matter of the other Beatles' involvement with these two albums. Because it wasn't like its success or failure was entirely on Klein's shoulders, as everything would have to have been approved and vetted by the rest of the Beatles. And that is what you largely come across when doing some wider reading around these albums. But, like, that really is it. Like, all we know is that, apparently, all four fabs gave it the thumbs up. In addition to one quote from Lennon, taken from 1980, and one video featuring George from 1993. Like, I can't find any quotes from Ringo or McCartney at all. Like, literally nothing. And there are no quotes from Lennon or George, like, around the time of release either. And the only opinions I can find on the album are from critics. But surely, if this album was so successful, then all four Beatles would have had something to say about it. But no. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because it was only three years since their breakup. All four of the Fabs were doing more than well enough with their own solo careers, and were largely doing everything in their power to distance themselves from that band. Like, we're certainly not getting all four of these guys in a room for a press conference about this album. I get that. No one wants to sit down with all three of their exes and reminisce about the good times so early after the big split, sure. But how were they all seemingly unavailable for comment along the lines of, yeah, it's good or yeah, it's bad? Is that too much to ask? Well, maybe. For McCartney, not only was the whole thing an Alan Klein project, making him very unlikely to promote it at all, but at the same time Red and Blue were coming out, Paul was working on Red Rose Speedway, and may have even seen the Beatle product as a rival to his own. Ringo was over in America working on his iconic Ringo album, aka the album where the Beatles do kind of get back together on one album anyway, so he was probably unavailable. And George, whilst he was working on Living in the Material World here in the UK, the entire Red album didn't feature him at all, or Ringo for that matter, and so he was likely pretty grumpy about being cut out of the first half of his own career, and it wouldn't surprise me if he declined to comment. But what did John say on the matter? Well, as it turns out, Lennon, likely from being a little to a lot closer to Alan Klein, did have some sense of responsibility over the album and over the Beatles' legacy as a whole. And so he took a couple of measures to make sure that it measured up to the rest of Beatle product. And, in all fairness, if there was any Beatle who could have effectively pulled rank on Klein and told him what to do, it is John. So, again, I think we got the best version of this album, these albums, that we were ever going to get. 
But yeah, when John was recounting the, the Red and Blue albums in 1980 with Andy Peebles on the Lost Lennon tapes, he said the following. I didn't want lousy versions going out. I wanted them to be as was. And I asked Capital Records or EMI or EMI Capital, whichever, please ask George Martin if he'll take care of this, and so at least he knows what to do. I don't want some strange guy, you know, making dub versions of it and putting it out, because of the versions that were going out on other compilations, the reissues were pretty poor. I hadn't even listened to them, because I just presumed they'd take the tape as we made it and make a master and put it out again. But they didn't. They'd been screwing around with a few of the early ones. I didn't know that until it was too late. So on the last package where they had Beatles 60 different periods, that one, I made sure, the red and blue, that one, I made sure that George Martin was there and I made sure that they put on the picture that Linda, that I got to take the same pose as their very first album cover over at Abbey Road. No, which one was that? EMI or some other place, some square, Manchester Square. So I was involved in that respect, in the package, making sure that the cover, that's what I wanted, and that the sound was done by George Martin. So I don't mind that one. Checked out the remix after he'd done it. It was as good as you could get out of whatever mono recording we did then. Right, there is an awful lot to unpack there, everyone, isn't there? At least of which my awful John Lennon impression. But first of all, what I like there is that John himself said he did not want lousy versions going out. He was still invested in the Beatles' legacy in the early 70s, perhaps a little more than we might expect. Then we find out that the only reason Klein got George Martin involved as producer for the set was entirely down to Lennon, and it's great that Lennon apparently trusted George Martin enough to handle this. That really is noteworthy. Again, a little against type as well. Of course, John is clearly disillusioned with the record industry as a whole and kind of correctly assumed that the worst Beatles compilations ever would have been made. Um, No, they came out after these albums, the really bad compilations, but then we get the other important element from Lennon in this set and arguably the most important one and certainly my favourite one, which is that it was his decision to use those two photos of the beginning and end of the Beatles' career in the EMI studios for this set, for the Red and Blue. And what an excellent decision to make there, John. You know, Clearly, he had thought about that image since the Get Back sessions. It was on his mind. And when an opportunity came to use that photo and use that fantastic imagery, he seized it and the results speak for themselves. Also, John is vehemently incorrect when he says that Linda McCartney took the second photo of the Beatles over the railing in the EMI building. That is a misremembrance of epic proportions. Also, we find out that John listened to the Red and Blue albums at least once after they came out, which is a nice touch as well. But yeah, clearly John was very involved in these two albums, at least compared to the other two Beatles. And... You know, it's pretty cool to know that probably two of the most important aspects of why Red and Blue worked out and connected people and connected with people the way it did is because just one quarter of the Beatles was putting in a minimal amount of effort. Like that's just how amazing they are. And again, that quote comes from the 1980 Lennon tapes with Andy Peebles, so it's not like 
John was rushing out there to let people know he was involved in these albums. It's nice to think that maybe there are other projects, you know, up until his death that John may have, in a kind of Machiavellian style, been pulling the strings on. Probably not, but you never know. Moving on to the only other Beatle involvement I could find with Red and Blue, and it would come 20 years later, with George Harrison attending the launch party for the 1993 remaster re-release of Red and Blue. I don't know how they got George there, I don't know how much they paid him or what they promised him. Clearly wheels were greased, and they got him in the building to say a few words. And when I say a few words... I mean a few words. The following that you're about to hear is a clip of George Harrison doing his bare minimum at this launch party to, you know, check a box that he attended it and said some things. Let's hear the clip. Hello, folks. We're having a photographic session. A uh, little bit. One. I'd like you to meet somebody that is much more important than any of us here. George Harrison. George, you're to come through. Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for coming. It's nice to see you all and see you're still interested in the Fab Four. (laughs) I brought you some incense. Lest we forget, all you need is love. We're just having a meeting. (laughs) Thanks, George. Thanks, Mike. Great, thanks. This lady, Many thanks to George for coming along. Great job there, George, you grumpy old git you. No, but seriously... No, but seriously, what another fantabulous example of George's sardonic, anti-establishment, misanthropic sense of dark humour shining through there. I mean, fair play to the bloke. He does not want to be there. He does not give a shite about these albums. He does not give a shite that they're being (laughs) re-released. He didn't then, he doesn't now. And especially because he's got anthology around the corner, something that he's actually involved in, it doesn't surprise me that he acted this way. Come on, George, collect the paycheck. I won't judge you. And now that we've covered all the involvement that the Beatles had entirely with this project, we're going to wrap up the first half of the show with a quick discussion about the front covers for Red and Blue. Well, should I say a chance to appreciate them. Now, even the most novice of Beatle fans will be aware of the imagery of both Red and Blue. They should be as recognisable as a mother's face. I mean, not only are these images iconic and popular in the Beatles sphere, but they are also known by music fans and even by a large portion of normies of a certain age. 
But why is this? Why are these so iconic? And, well, a lot of that is due to how iconic and popular the Red and Blue albums were, respectively. But the reason that the images themselves are so memorable and so evocative is that because together, the two images tell such a compelling story and say so much, they express so much history without any words at all. For the group's 1963 debut LP, Please Please Me, photographer Angus McBean took the distinctive colour photograph of the group looking down over the stairwell inside EMI House, which is EMI's London headquarters in Manchester Square, which is now demolished. Then, in 1969, the Beatles asked McBean to recreate the shot, and they did, successfully. And it was originally going to be used for the Get Back album, but it was not used, and then that project became Let It Be, which had a whole new cover. And instead, the project, you know, the idea of using those two photos, went unused. And instead, had to wait for another three years until another suitable project came along, and for John Lennon to insist that they're used. I know I've already pontificated a bit on how much I love these two images, but folks, I'm really not overreacting when I say that it is some of the best imagery, some of the most awe-inspiring imagery in the Beatle canon. I mean, just looking at, at these four guys going from these four young, fresh-faced lads into these wizened, hairy hippies into these men is, like... You know, not only is it great in telling the Beatle narrative, but it's also just a narrative as old as time, you know, just ageing and the passing of time. It's It stirs up so many emotions in you as a person, as a Beatle fan, as a music fan, as a, a person who's aware of history. Like, it just does it for me. It gets me going. You know what I mean? The inner gatefold for both LPs has been attributed to both Stephen Goldblatt and Don McCullin. And those photos are from the Mad Day Out photo session that were taken in London on Sunday the 28th of July 1968. Again, like the front cover, their inner gatefold Im imagery is very much in the same vein in the sense that it's an amazing Beatle photo shoot that hadn't been used at that point and then a super project like this comes along and boom, it's perfect and it really is. Also, we cannot go any further without talking about the fact that the Red and Blue albums have Red and Blue on their album covers. And legend has it is that the two colours reflect the stripes of the two football teams in the Beatles' home city, a.k.a. the main colours of Liverpool and Everton. But I always just assumed that the Red and Blue albums were meant to be connected to the White Album, all of them forming the colours of the Union Jack, aka the flag of the United Kingdom. But if you have any theories as to why the Red and Blue Album are the Red and Blue Album, please drop me an email at paulmccarneypod at gmail.com. Is it just because they are the two main primary colours? Yeah, probably. Of course, both images found on the Red and Blue album covers now kind of unofficially are linked to the 
album single artwork for Now and Then that we touched on last episode. You know, the, the parallel lines featured on the red and blue imagery exactly line up with the Now and Then stuff. Again, really cool. I'm sure it was intentional, but hey, maybe not. You never know. But considering that Now and Then is on the blue album, it does make sense. Also, just before we move on, am I the only one that is kind of irritated that the angles of the photos taken, you know, of the two works don't quite match, don't quite line up? Like, I understand that the whole shoot was probably a spur-of-the-moment thing, and there was not too much time for planning, and McBean was probably using a handheld camera, but come on, they could have taken an extra few seconds to take a couple of extra snaps. I mean, why not? Again, don't get me wrong, it's iconic, you know, really gripping imagery. I love the storytelling involved, but it would have been nice if they could have taken an extra few seconds to sort it out. Maybe AI could sort it out, who knows, but maybe that would be a step too far now, wouldn't it? And that brings us to the end of the backstory, folks. All of the preamble stuff before we get into the review of the 2023 re-release, remix thingamabobs of the Red and Blue albums, a.k.a. The Beatles 1962-1966 and The Beatles 1967-1970. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break, we're going to slow down, we're going to chill out and crack on with the matter of the... And starting off, we have the news. And what's going on in the world of Paul and the Beatles? Well, first of all, we have the chart results. The data is in for their final single, Now and Then. And I always like to defer to a quote if it's better than what I could write. And so let's go right now to the officialcharts.com, who says... Having been released six days into the official chart week and with just 10 hours of sales counting towards its weekly total, on Friday the 3rd of November 2023, Now and Then still managed to debut at number 42 on the UK's official singles chart. 48 hours later, on the official chart's first look bulletin for the new week, Now and Then had catapulted out in front of the midweeks with the official charts reporting that the Beatles were on course to claim their first UK number one single in 54 years since The Ballad of John Yoko in 1969. On the 10th of November 2023, the Beatles made a record-breaking return to the number one spot on the UK's official singles chart with Now and Then, setting a new record for the longest time span between an artist's first and last number one. Now and Then reached the top of the UK official chart 60 years and 6 months after the Beatles' first number one, From Me To You, in May 1963. Now and Then is also signified by another record-breaking gap. The band's last number one prior to Now and Then was a whole 54 years earlier, 1969's The Ballad of John and Yoko. A huge week of opening sales saw the Fab Four deliver the UK's fastest-selling vinyl single of the century too. According to the UK official charts data, as well as the biggest one-week physical sale in nearly a decade since 2014's X Factor winner's single Something I Need by Ben Haynow or Heenow, I don't know. The accolades didn't stop there either. The Beatles set new personal bests on the digital front too notching up the most streams in a week of any Beatles song ever, 
5 million. While Now and Then became the band's most viewed official music video in a week with over 2 million UK video streams. Of course, we were all hoping for that coveted second week number one, but alas, it seems that Young Sprogs, Jack Harlow, Dua Lipa and Taylor Swift are set to take the top spot for, away from the fans a week later, but still one week in the number one spot and one week in the top 10 ain't half bad. Then in the States, things haven't fared so well, which is odd really because the Beatles are still more popular there than they are here. But maybe the mix of Taylor Swift fever and a different ad campaign and cultural significance has resulted in the Beatles debuting on the Billboard Top 100 singles chart at only number seven. Still, a number seven in America ain't nothing. Translating to, as of the 11th of November, 11 million streams, 2.1 million radio reaches, and 73,000 physical and digital sales sold combined in the US between the 3rd and 9th of November. All data was provided by Luminate. Right, that's pretty good, ain't it, folks? I mean, we're all happy that Now and Then has done well, right? I mean, it's always fun when the fabs are legitimised in public pop culture this way. You know, I remember gloating and feeling awfully proud when McCartney was number one with McCartney 3 and number two with Egypt Station. You know, people can roll their eyes at it and say that it's just, you know, legacy artists with legacy people buying it. But come on. The Beatles have still got it. The Beatles are still number one. And whilst the the realm of pop music is not the same and music's totally dispensed in a, in a different way and absorbed and consumed in different ways, you know, they're still able to punch through and still get a week in the top spot. I think that's really cool. Next up in the news, we have another piece related to Now and Then, only this one is a little sadder and actually it's a, it's, it, it's a lot sadder, it's tragic really. Basically, back in April of 2022, musician Caroline Buckman was asked to play on what she thought was going to be a new Paul McCartney record called Give and Take. The gig was worth a couple of hundred bucks and lasted all but three hours. Of course, as we discussed last episode, these secret string sessions were a ruse to hide the fact that they were indeed for Now and Then. However, it was over a year before Now and Then would eventually be released. And in March of 2023, Caroline Buchmann sadly passed away after a long battle with breast cancer. The true tragedy though, folks, is that Caroline never even knew she was featured on the very last Beatles record. However, it is reported that her surviving family are, of course, not only very proud, but that Caroline herself was at least still thrilled to have worked on a Paul McCartney record before she passed away. So there's a little silver lining. She had also worked with Neil Young, Brian Wilson, R.E.M., The Velvet Underground's John Cale, and her credits also include the soundtracks for Star Wars, Star Trek, and Breaking Bad. Also, also, I just want to point out that Give and Take is a very Paul McCartney-sounding song title, and... I don't know if it was just made up 
or if Paul knows his own shtick better than we think. But yeah, either way, cracking stuff. Following on, and we have a rather curious little piece of news, and I will begin it with a question. Has anyone here ever heard of Yoto? No, not Yoko. (laughs) No, I'd never heard of Yoto either. But as it turns out, Yoko is a company that makes what they proudly declare is a screenless device that allows toddlers and young children to listen to music and audio tapes without the worry that they will have access to the internet or that mouth-breathing NSA agents are going to be listening in on them. From what I've gathered, the Yoto itself is a little speaker that instead of CDs or like having a USB drive, it uses these card floppy disk-like things that feel very toy-like, very childish, and you just slot them in the top like a a punch card or an, an old Nintendo video game or something. It's all very simple, all very easy to use, and it's a way to allow kids to have some audio fun. You know, it's all very wholesome. You know, they, they, they can listen to bedtime stories or nursery rhymes outside of the internet. Lovely stuff, right? McCartney, get them young folks, but we have to start them young. Indoctrination is the best way to keep any fandom going, as we all know. And finally, in terms of the news, this episode has actually taken so long to get out that I actually have the chart performance numbers for both red and blue now. And unfortunately, Taylor Swift has entered a third straight week at the number one spot on the UK album chart with her 1989 Taylor's version re-release her fourth in her sixth re-recorded LP project thingy-ma-bobs. You've probably heard all about it or not. In doing so, Swift denies the Beatles a record-extending 16th number one album in the charts here in the UK, which is a shame. The Red album has entered at number three, and the Blue album has entered at number two. So the top three positions in the UK are all re-releases of previously released albums, which is pretty funny, though I have heard that the albums sold in the box set, the red and blue box set, don't individually go towards the count for either of those albums on the charts, and if they had been, then they would have managed to have knocked off Taylor Swift during her third week, maybe there needs to be a recount, maybe this is a Jeb Bush-esque fixing of the election, who knows, but hey, number two and number three, again, not too bad for a band whose compilation album came out three years after they broke up and then the re-release came out 50 years after that. Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all, folks. Also, at the time of recording, I'm just checking the US charts now, and the Blue album is at number 15, and the Red album is at number 20. Right, the news is now over, folks, and we can crack on with the emails. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I love reading out any and all correspondence. And today, we've actually got two. Our first email today has been sent in by Andrew P., one of our listeners from Poland. Shoutouts to Andrew. And he says, Hi, Sam. Hope you're well and greetings from Poland. I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year now, and I've listened to almost all of your episodes, including the ones from before me becoming an active follower. I would like to tell you a story of how I met the man himself. But before that, a little bit of background. 
I'm 27 and got into the Beatles when I was around 9. For a couple of years, I never listened to the solo stuff, as I thought nothing could ever top the Beatles. So there was no point. But one day, I guess I was around 13 years old, I accidentally embarked on a YouTube video of Paul performing Drive My Car from The Space Within Us. Before that, I had never seen any videos of the older Paul performing. Immediately this caught my eye, as he looked just so cool. I started watching multiple videos of Paul in concert, and this is the way I learned about songs like Let Em In, Jet, Flaming Pie, or Live and Let Die. And you know what? They were pretty good. And from that moment on, I've listened to all Wings and Paul's solo albums and became a massive fan. I still love the Beatles, I would still consider them superior, but having discovered the whole Paul catalogue, I have even more appreciation for him and his input into the band, as well as everything else he's done. And my favourite albums now include Back to the Egg and Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. He really is the greatest of all time, no doubt about that. Heck, he's even the reason I started to play guitar and bass. That obviously being a Hoffner. And now, to the story of meeting Paul. It was 2018, May 3rd, and me and my buddy were visiting our friend living in London. And me, being the massive Beatle fan that I am, had to go to St John's Wood and see Abbey Road as well as Cavendish. First time I'd been there was two years earlier, but apart from taking a photo, I had no luck whatsoever. Well, my luck was about to change. I don't know how to explain this, but I had a strange deep, deep feeling that we'd bump into Paul this time. The moment we arrived in London, I told my friend, listen, if we run into Paul, I need you to remember to take out your phone and start recording, as no one would later believe me. Being that meeting Paul was my biggest dream, I too was prepared. I had a black marker ready in my coat for Paul to sign my arm and then for me to later get it tattooed, like he often so does in concerts. I even remember speaking on the phone to my sister that day, saying, we're leaving Hyde Park and going up to Cavendish to meet Paul. She replied, say hi to him, like it was just another day. When we got to St John's Wood, I started looking at passing cars, as I had this feeling of Paul's presence in the area. My friends couldn't stop laughing at me behaving like this, all stressed out combined with excitement, but I knew. We almost got to Cavendish Avenue, and coming out of the street, it was Paul, walking his son James. I said to my friends, already losing my breath, it's him! And because I've imagined this moment so many times, it was almost automatic. I just took the marker out of my coat and approached Paul. When I was about 10 meters away, I said, voice trembling, excuse me, Sir Paul, could you please kindly sign my arm so I could later get it tattooed? Let me tell you, I was so proud of training my friend at this moment so well, because he did start recording. I'm sure nobody would believe me if it wasn't for that. But back to Paul. He stopped, turned his face to me and said, I'm very sorry, I don't sign in this area, but I can chat with you. Can you imagine that? He could have said anything to me, fuck off or even ignore me. But he didn't, he was so kind. Looking back, I do understand this completely. After all, this was at St John's Wood. It wasn't a public appearance for him, and I'm sure he doesn't wish for fans to ask him for autographs almost outside of his house. And he was so gentle in letting me understand that. Sometimes people say do not meet your heroes as they will disappoint, but this was not the case with Paul. Despite not getting a signing on my arm, he treated me as a fan in the best possible way. Back to the chat with Paul, after explaining that he wouldn't sign me, he smoothly proceeded to the chat part, 
saying, nice to meet you, and he shook my hand. He noticed two of my friends with me and asked, are those two with you? This was when my friends took out a couple of steps forward whilst obviously stopping recording and also went to shake his hand. I had a Beatles t-shirt, of course, and so after shaking our hands, Paul pointed at it and said, I like your t-shirt. I was like, oh my God, he noticed. I was speechless. Paul, being the expert in such encounters, immediately summed it all up with, all right, cheers, guys. And that was it. He and James went forward. It probably took no less than a minute. But we were standing there for another maybe 10 minutes without a movement. We all couldn't believe what just happened. And thinking back, there are so many things I could have told him in that brief moment, like that I learned bass because of him, that I love Wings and the solo stuff and Back to the Egg is my favorite album, or even a simple thing like I'm from Poland, but I didn't even say any of that, I couldn't. It's funny how Paul did the talking. From Cavendish, we went along to Abbey Road, and as usual, it was filled with fans, primarily from Asia, taking pics at the crossing. And I remember saying quickly to my friends, they don't know that the man they are here to see, the man they are imitating with their poses on the crosswalk, is actually walking around here, probably just five minutes away. This awareness was incomprehensible to us. So I didn't get the autograph, which would be my first and only ever tattoo, but I got to talk to Paul, which was just like I expected. A nice open guy, and I got a video of it happening. I'm so pleased to attach it to this email. I've seen Paul four times. Well, five, if you count our in-person meeting. I saw him in Rotterdam on the run, Warsaw, the Out There tour, and Krakow and London for freshen up. I hope he'll bring the Got Back tour to Europe very soon. Oh, and one more thing. At the Krakow show, December 2018, I was in the fourth row and had a Polish flag with me and a sign that said, Welcome to Paul Land, with the W stylized like the Wings logo. And when Paul walked out on stage, waving to the fans, he looked my way and mouthed, Oh, Paul Land. So yeah, he noticed again. And this makes me happy to this day. I wanted to share these memories with you and thank you for the work you're doing. A workout with Paul or nothing in the headphones is now a regular thing for me. Wishing you all the best and take care. Thank you, Andrew from Poland. Oh, thank you for that, Andrew. What an amazing email. So detailed. I feel like I know you already. And folks, I've just watched the video clip that Andrew sent me. I didn't know that that's what this other file in the email was. And oh God, he's there with Paul. Oh my God. And fucking James McCartney is there as well. What? Why is everyone on this podcast either, either got exclusive Fireman vinyl or an autograph or have met Paul but me. I mean, what am I doing to deserve this? Come on, why haven't I bumped into Paul? Maybe I need to hang around St. John's Wood a little more. Also, in the other file that Andrew sent me is the Welcome to Paul Land sign and it is as awesome as you are thinking in your head. I'll probably post it on the Twitter after this episode comes out. But yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for that email. I myself have actually been to Poland and I've actually been to Krakow. I went about a decade ago, maybe even longer, with my school. We went to Auschwitz. Not the most uh, fun and carefree trip, but I really enjoyed my time in Krakow. Especially the two hours that us students were allowed to hang out in the main city square and we all got very drunk and someone was sick on the teacher's shoes 
and all of our booze got confiscated. Well, except for mine, actually. And I was the only person not to get in trouble because unlike all the other 17-year-olds on the trip, I myself was 18 and they couldn't touch me. <laughs> but yeah, Andrew, I am so jealous of you right now. <laughs> and I too also hope that Paul brings the Got Back Tour to Europe as soon as possible. Hey, maybe I'll even see you in London for the final show. Who knows? But that is not all, folks. We do have another email here today as well. And this is from one of our Patreon patrons, Mr. Richard or Rick Campbell. Old Dickie Campbell, as I'm now going to call him. I bet he's going to love that nickname. <laughs> but yeah, Andrew's responding to the preview of the first half of this episode that I put up on the Patreon. You know, I do like to put up my stuff as I'm working on it, as it were. So people are always updated. They've always got stuff to wet their beaks. And he responded to the first half of this episode that I kind of recorded before the housekeeping segment. And he is responding to some stuff I say in the first half. Before we even get to the second half. Here we go. Old Dickers writes, Honestly, Sam, in Canada, no one was slavering for more Beatle product in 1973. We'd all given up. Klein only put out the albums to fulfil EMI record contract obligations, the contract they all signed in September 1969, and to probably create a new generation of Beatle fans. And yet, it was hugely successful on both levels. The releases came as a total surprise to me. I bought Red because I didn't have any of the early Beatles records in 73, and it would tide me over until I did. I'd only just started buying records two years previously. I was a teenager, and like all my friends, I didn't have the money to buy Please Please Me through Revolver. Some Canon releases weren't even properly available here anyway. But I could afford the Red album, and thank God my brother had the truncated North American Revolver. The Red album only contained the single. This is the modus operandi of a lot of compilation albums from the time. Don't have the dosh? Have this instead. Also, there were other folks steeping themselves in Bowie, Cooper, Floyd, Stones, Genesis, Neil Young, T-Rex, Prog, Glam, whatever, and so Red and Blue filled their fab niche while they got on with the rest of the music they really cared about. As you say, the dirty casuals. In short, it revitalised the band in the same way that the anthology would in the 90s, but only temporarily. By 1980, before the assassination of Lennon, they were in full eclipse and decline again, except to Beatle maniacs. Used record racks were full of Beatle records for great prices. I bought my white album new in 1976 for £2. It was only the availability of a nicely priced UK and Japanese pressing in 1997 that I got some of us going back to buying fabs. At last, the proper canon could be had here in Canada. Other than that, by 1980, I was listening to The Pretenders and Russ Never Sleeps. Then, when Shout came out not long after with its crap take on Paul, I walked away from reading anything about the band. Our current obsession with the Beatles is recent, dating back to Anthology and its ripple effect on Millennials. But why have I, an old hand, bought these new releases? The Martin remixes, that's why. I want to hear what old red stuff sounds like mixed by him and not streamed. Even lossless streaming has its limits. It's also a preview of Super Deluxes to come, especially Rubber Soul, and I collect vinyl and occasionally Beatle vinyl. I want to hear them on plastic. And, like you, the coloured vinyl and the blue single of Now and Then was too tempting for me. Sadly, 
the added songs come as separate records unlike the CDs. But that's the way it goes, eh mate? And also, a rare moment in my life, I actually had the extra money to buy these. I also bought them out of sentimentality. I sold my original copies in 79 whilst raising money for a Laker Airways ticket to London. By then I had the cannon though. Anyway, can't wait for them to arrive any day now. Best to you pal, Rick Campbell. Of course, thank you so much for that Rick, Richard, Dickers, Dicky. thank you so much for that. I really appreciate another absolutely detailed email there. I feel like I've gone through your whole entire Beatle fandom in just one email. And whilst I'd like to go into what I think about the Red and Blue album in response to what you wrote specifically, it's also the next thing that's coming up in the episode, so I shan't do that. But thank you for the context about what the fandom was like in Canada in 73. That's that's so funny about how you mentioned uh, cheap vinyl, because when I first got into the Beatles, they were in one of their lulls, and oh, the vinyl was so cheap then as well. It's clearly one of those peaks and trough things. We're at a peak right now, which means there's only another trough around the corner. Although I would disagree with you about your brother having the American Revolver in addition to your Red Album, because uh, I'd argue no Revolver is better than the American Revolver, but that's just me. If you're ever in London, Richard, and you want to hang out again, please let me know. Though, don't sell these copies of Red and Blue that you've just bought just to do that. And folks, if you, like Richard or Andrew, would like to write into the show, if you want to tell me your thoughts on recent Beatle or Paul McCartney product, if you want to talk about a time you've met him or when you've seen him in concert, your thoughts on the music, thoughts on episodes, past, present or future, maybe you play an instrument, Whatever it is, no matter how tangentially related to Paul it may be, it can be almost borderline unrelated if you want. But regardless, if you want to get in touch, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. That's paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. For day-to-day updates and for constant um, silly witterings, join us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneypod. Check out the blog for bonus Paul or nothing written content at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, on YouTube, all the socials by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the place where you can check out brand new episodes of our sister show, Macca in Your Attic. There are ones around the corner, folks, I do swear. Now, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us some form of interaction, some form of engagement, whether it is a like, a thumbs up, a tick, a rating, some stars, a comment. Maybe you post a link on a forum or to your friends, or you mention the podcast to one of your co-workers or something like that. Whatever you do, it's greatly appreciated because you know, I love this little Beatle McCartney community that we've built for ourselves here, and I just want to share it with as many people as possible. But if you want to help out directly, if you want to help out in a way that helps keep the lights running, helps keep me in Beetle product to review on the show, maybe get new equipment, that kind of thing, or maybe you just appreciate what I do here at Paul or Nothing for free, 
Nordic Nomads, by the way, uh, and maybe you want to buy me a, a coffee a month, that's what they say, then please consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon, as I'm sure you're aware, is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. And it's not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You do get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing, or a week's early access to all episodes of Macca in your attic. Anything I do on Zoom is instantly put up on there. So if I do an interview with someone, that will go up straight onto the Patreon, unedited and with a video feed. Um, also, episodes that are partially complete, I do post as well, just as little teasers. You get access to all the scripts that I use for the show, lost and bonus, and uh, forever hidden episodes of Mac in Your Attic are also available there as well as the exclusive Patreon vlog. Yes, in addition to specific episodes that I might do for the patrons, I also do, uh, as often as I can, a little bit of bonus video content where we just do anything that really doesn't fit onto the show in general or can't be made into a full like, three-hour episode. This week, we'll be doing Red and Blue, but with wings, obviously to go along with the release of this Red and Blue album. I think you've worked it out by now. I'm going to be doing the Red and Blue albums, but with wings. Easy peasy. If any of that interests you, if you want to get some bonus exclusive Paul or Nothing content that you can't get for free anywhere else, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron. I cannot do the show without my patrons. They are the lifeblood of the show, and I can't do without them. And so, before we get back to the show, here's a quick shout-out to everyone who makes this show what it is. Thanks to Carol E. Cantor, This Swan, Sam Hode, Nikolai Hauptman, Pete, Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, Stephanie Bradley, John Carr, Brian Brigman, Jeff Hume, Percy Thrillington, David Stabersky, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Broderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Teresa B, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my main man, Matt Phillips. Right, folks, this has taken far too long. Why? Because there's actually been emails. Oh my gosh, I forgot how long housekeepings are normally when there actually is correspondence. Don't use that as an excuse not to email in, folks. I want those emails. But yeah, let's get back to the show and my review of Red and Blue. Right, folks, after another preamble that turned out to be way longer than any of us wanted or expected, it is now time for me to throw in my two cents into this ongoing debate with these new 2023 albums. Are these improvements over what came before? Do these totally replace the original 73 versions? What are the mixes like? Yada, yada, yada. Yes, I'm here to answer all of these questions and more. So, let's leap right into the Red and Blue Waters. I have had this set now for about two weeks at the time of recording. Yes, this episode has taken quite a long time to come out. And I've been playing the vinyl set all the way through, over and over and over. And I've listened to the streaming version pretty much on repeat whenever I've had my earphones in. Though it didn't come up on my Spotify rap, so it definitely came out too late in the year. But yeah, there really hasn't been a second of these Red and Blue albums that I've not thoroughly enjoyed Shock of all horrors, I really enjoyed this Big Beatles duo box set. It's really, really, really good. Like, I will have to admit that I've had a bit of a break from listening to 
the Beatles, especially early Beatles, for about a year. And so I was looking forward to immersing myself in their world again properly. And this set allowed me just to lose myself almost instantly in their entire career in a way that I'd argue I haven't really done since the earliest days of my fandom. It's been fun. It really has. And that's the review, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Paul or Nothing. Yes, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves today and... Okay, okay, okay. No, this isn't the end of the episode. And yes, I have had a burning desire to end an episode that way just to cut down on time since I started this podcast. But no, of course, there is much more to discuss with these albums. But the thing is, and I feel like, you know, looking back at my review now, just before I go into it, my comments for improvements and my nitpicks seem to be significantly outweighing the positives, at least in terms of length. And that's the thing about reviews. Not only is it easier to find flaws in things you don't like, but it's also easier to pontificate and waffle about things you don't like. So before we get too deep into the weeds, let me just reiterate and reaffirm that I'm overwhelmingly pleased with this set. I love all of the music therein, and I think it's been a resounding success, mostly, from disc one to disc six. Okay, we've got that clear. But we also can't rule out that this might just be me. Let's first determine what the objectives of this re-release were and whether it achieved them. First of all, and most importantly, these albums are meant to introduce a whole new generation to the general career broad strokes of the Beatles, much in the same way that the originals did. However, this time, it'll be connecting with fans mostly through streaming. Secondly, these albums are to inspire nostalgia and gooey warm feelings in the hearts of the established first, second and third generations of fans, e.g. the people who are buying the cassettes, CDs and vinyls. And also, just like the originals, these new Red and Blue albums are a perfect excuse to update the Beatles sound quality. Yes, we have had the archive sets, but this is an opportunity to you know, bring large elements of the early discography up to date and back into the high fidelity fold, as it were. The set is also about correcting some of the issues found in the original 73 sets, some of which that have been annoying the fans for about half a century now. And finally, these albums, this box set, is designed to rehabilitate the perceptions of the Red and Blue albums and reinitiate them, welcome back into the official Beatle family, as it were, to once again restore them to their former glory in the fandom and make them official part of Beatles canon. And I know some of you are wondering, how could one double set achieve all of these goals? How could they have done it? Surely not. Well, I'll tell you the answer, folks. And this is the jaded, cynical, easy-to-point-out-flaws dickhead me that's saying this. And I truly do mean this. Yeah, they did. Not perfectly, but well enough. And I'm happy with that. And you really should be too. Let's start off with the first thing that we see with this set, and that is the packaging. Yes, yada, yada, yada. I'll whiz through this, folks. Overall, though, it is an indicator of what is going to be therein. You know, my McCartney 1, 2, 3 memories are coming back to me again. And no, the package was not sent to me bent or torn or with fingerprints on it, so well done to Apple for not handling my package like a careless teenager. 
that's always appreciated. But as with all of the recent Beatle and McCartney content, sans the 123 box set, this is of the highest quality as per, you know. This is definitely up there with the Let It Be and Revolver sets in particular. It slots in nice with those albums. You know, we've got the same high quality building materials here. The box that it comes in itself is a nice thick cardboard. The album sleeves themselves are a nice printed, slick, shiny, glossy card. It's all very, you know, well made. It's all high quality materials. It doesn't feel cheap. And it's all in service, of course, of that very expensive price tag. But <laughs> at least you get your money's worth here. This is meant to last. This is meant to be displayed. And you can be proud of that. And of course, we have the vinyl itself as well. And of course, I went for the coloured vinyl edition. And I would be lying through my front teeth if I said that said coloured vinyl had no impact on my decision to pick up this set in the first place. Because, it, oh, it's just so damn pretty, isn't it? Uh, I love how it's slightly translucent rather than that kind of slightly cheaper looking solid block colour. Just, it is very beautiful. I was, I was never going to be able to resist a red album with red vinyl and a blue album with blue vinyl. That's just the way things are. But yeah, those are my delay tactics. That's about as much as I can talk about without talking about the album itself. So let's get into the nitty gritty of these six vinyl discs and two CDs. Yes, it is time to talk about the songs themselves and you know, the big selling point about this box set, these two albums, was that we were going to be getting a bucket load, a shed load of new mixes, and this set had about 30 of them. You know, it's not exactly new material, you know, the songs themselves are 50, 60 years old, but new mixes to a Beatle fan is the next best thing. It's like curry to a pisshead. You know, we will take whatever we can get our grubby little hands on at this point. And the prospect of having an obscure album track just sounding 1% better is just too tempting to pass up. Fortunately, the Beatles have always been at the forefront of legitimate new recording, mixing and audio technology. And of course, this set was an incredible opportunity to fully utilize and take advantage of Peter Jackson's new machine assisted learning or MAL software. You know what it is by now. It's that AI thingy stuff that brings... You know what it is by now, folks. It's that AI stuff that you've heard all about on the news. And we're going to use that to bring the entire Beatles discography up to the same standard, bring it all into line. As far as I can tell, this is basically still done through magic. The AI is able to pick out individual instruments and vocals, demix them, and then you know it gives you all the individual tracks where you weren't able to have that before, you know, you'd have like a vocal and a drum or a vocal and an instrument on one track and they were together, they were the sound, but no more. And what an opportunity this is. And guess what, folks? Just like in the Beatles Get Back series and with Now and Then, this whole AI thing has knocked it out of the park. It is clear that this tech does indeed meet expectations and for many people it will exceed them. Never before have the band been presented with such clarity and purity. Of course, this is an issue for Beatle fans to work out over the next 50 years on forums and in comment sections, but from what I can physically hear, the majority of the new mixes in this set 
are now the de facto official and best available mixes for those songs. Yes, hardcore fans will have specific mixes that they will prefer, but as far as the general public goes, as far as Joe blogs and Jane blogs go, right now there is no better way for people to experience slash get into this music. These mixes do everything in their power to emphasise the youth, the excitement, the dynamism, the genius, the energy of these musicians and, oh my God, the, the, the Beatles have never sounded better. It sounds like press, it sounds like spiel and spin, but it's the truth. And I couldn't be happier because these mixes are going to be leading the fandom into the future. You know, unless there is another leap forward in audio tech that we cannot comprehend, these are going to be the representatives of the band for the foreseeable. These mixes are advanced, they're clear, and they are standardised. Every Beatle fan for the next 50 years is guaranteed the same super high quality experience. You know, this is the democratisation of the Beatles catalogue, though whether you see that as democracy at the end of a rifle barrel is your opinion, I guess. And remember everyone, I am normally the one who's always talking about how I have a tin ear for this sort of thing and how I can never hear the difference with mixes. And so for me to be genuinely able to perceive and appreciate any of this potentially gimmicky audiophile stuff is an achievement in production in its own right and a testament to just how good and significant these changes have been. Yes, Pandora's box has been opened, but at least we've gotten a sick Beatles collection out of it before everything goes to shit. The only thing I will say about these mixes um, is that I feel like they probably could have done a bit more and given every song the maltreatment because, and this is a main issue with the Blue Album and we'll talk about it a bit more later, but if a mix has already been done on, say, an archive re-release or one of the 50th anniversary ones, then that's the mix that they're using in this box set as well. So on the one hand, I am very glad that I've got some of those box set mixes that I was never able to purchase the first time around, but I feel like mm, some of these mixes probably could be a little bit more cohesive because, I mean, some of them go back as far as 2015 and it's 2023 now. We're going into 2024. So if we're going to be updating the songs that are 50 or 40 or 30 years since the last mix, couldn't we have done one for nine years as well? Like, I get that Revolver wasn't done and maybe at, uh, the Let It Be one, but, you know, the, the Sgt. Pepper stuff and the White Album stuff, that's been over half a decade. Surely we could have had 2023 mixes there as well. But, hey, I'm not going to complain because I do want to talk about the separation of the instruments and vocals specifically here. And the best way I can put this, and this is something I was only able to really articulate during my properly listening run-throughs of the album, you know, where I was sat down not writing notes or being distracted by TV or anything. And... The best things about these two albums is that more than ever, if you're a person like me who likes to make out and focus on and isolate specific instruments or vocals, it is easier than ever. Far easier. 
the claps on Roll Over Beethoven, the piano on Fool on the Hill or While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Paul's vocal on Hey Jude, the bass in Drive My Car. They were all perceptible in a way I was never able to experience without said separation. Honestly, outside of like demos and early takes and stuff, this is the most fun I've had with newly released Beatle content. I mean, yeah, of course, having the songs just sound better is a joy in itself, but the ability to go back and deconstruct them in a way and turn them inside out and be, you know, be able to freshly dissect them is genuinely a captivating experience with me getting lost in the music for long stretches as paths previously well-worn and trodden seemed new and fresh to me once again. It gives you a much more comprehensive and 3D look at the Beatles as a band, like how these songs were constructed and put together. And it's not like the magic disappears, you only appreciate it more. Like, whenever an album or a remix is released, including Beatle ones, the advertising always claims that you'll be able to hear the music like never before, or for the very first time. And I swear on my life, folks, this is as close as you can get as a modern fan to hearing the fabs for the very first time. Hearing these recordings and mixes, both for Red and Blue, actually made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I got all tingly, my cheeks flushed. It was all there, folks. And you only have to pop on the album for a few seconds before the power of the material has you hooked. Yes, everyone, these albums do in fact still have patented, copyrighted Beatle magic. Of course, being that the tracks are now separated, it means that individual instrumentation is far easier to pinpoint and make out to the listener, meaning that the individual players playing those parts can now be more individually scrutinised over 50 years later for recordings that each artist may have only had one or two takes of. But yeah, the short of that is that we can now focus on each individual Beatle ugh, in a way that you've never been able to do before. Amusingly, I've seen some reviews where they talk about John and George's guitar parts, particularly the rhythm guitar parts that were the winners from these mixes, but I've read other ones claiming that this is the drum and bass edition and they're the clear-cut winners, and then I was just sat there thinking that actually the vocals were the thing that sounded best to me. But I think that's where the truth reveals itself, folks. The fact of the matter is that these new mixes sound so good in every single way and are so well-rounded and every individual instrument sounds so good that I guarantee you that whatever instruments you thought were lacking or sounded bad on a previous mix will now be the ones that sound the best. Or the tracks that you were not focusing on the last time around will now be the ones that sound best to you. At the end of the day, they were all killer musicians, and it's now just easier to prove and appreciate that than ever, thanks to this new technology. But let's get a little more specific now. Let's talk about one of these albums in particular, The Red Album, because The Red Album and The Blue Album in this 2023 release were not created fully equal. And that is because... There is a lot more material from the Beatles' early period that has not been officially remixed in the modern Giles Martin context. You know, the big draw for this set, for me, was the prospect of the 2023 mixes of pre-Revolver material. 
you know, I mentioned earlier that just the mixes in general were what were pulling me in, but the majority of these were on the Red album. I mean, think about it, folks. Just a couple of years ago, it was still purported and rumoured that we were never going to get anything substantial remixed before 1966. And so imagine how exciting it is to now have about 30 songs worth of that material instead. It's an incredible gift from Apple. Like, I know it's all just one big tech demo and that they're kind of just laying their balls on the table in terms of future releases, but we are so lucky. We are so lucky here. But there was still trepidation going in. Like, we all knew what AI and modern mixing could do with more recent Beatles material, with more modern recording techniques, but what were they going to be able to do with those old-ass recordings? You know, I was sceptical in a way that I wasn't about, like, say, Fool on the Hill or Hey Bulldog that would be on the uh, Blue album. And I was a bit worried that part of the inherent magic of those early recordings was based somewhat in the technological limitations that were part of the, the recording process. You know, in the same way that, like, certain limitations in technology meant that Filmmakers couldn't just use CGI to fix a problem and they had to be creative. You know, I was, I, was, I was worried that the creativity would have been lost in the mix somehow. Well, I'm pleased to say that the early Red Era Beatles recordings from the 1962 to 1966 box set are spellbinding. Again, I have had a slight Beatle break of late, and so maybe that's why some of these sound a little fresher to me. You know, maybe I've forgotten certain nuances. But still, even taking that into account with my calculations, these new mixes of the Beatles' early material in this box set on the Red Album are fucking out of this world, everyone. I mean, these are as different and as updated and as revolutionary as the hype promised. And nothing ever lives up to Beatle hype, so you know how well they've done here. Like, to have these old-ass recordings, you know, that are closer to being a century old now than they aren't, um, to have them be presented in such clear, modern, and fresh fashion really is noticeable. And in some cases, it's, like, borderline jarring how new these recordings sound. You know, you've got all the separation and the space available, and each individual Beatle is clearer than ever, and more so than on the Blue Album, you really do get to appreciate the young Beatles as instrumentalists. And fuck me, do they ever sound electric, folks. You know, All the youth and the energy that you remember from those recordings are here and more present than ever. You know, you can use all the cliches that you want. It sounds like you're in the room with them. It sounds like it was recorded today. It sounds like it's live. Whatever you want. All of those are true. It's freakishly clear. Like, the clarity is almost indescribable, folks. You really have to just listen to it to understand what I'm talking about. And yes, if I have to just compare red to blue, then yes, of course, the greatest value for money is in red because, you know, there are previous mixes that were previously available that are on blue, you know, and there's only a couple of new mixes on that album. And if you are looking for new Beatle product and you can only afford one or the other for some reason, then, of course, pick up the red one. But be warned, this box set 
is mostly just the perfect advertisement for future Beetle Archive and 50th Anniversary re-releases. And so, you know, if you don't want to end up getting the remakes and re-releases of Revolver and Beatles for Sale, don't pick up Red because, you know, the addiction will be complete. You won't not be able to pick them up. I mean, the more cynical side of me does see it as being a potential spoiler for those future releases, but in the same way that Alan Klein only including a few songs from, say, the White Album would send you out to go and buy the White Album, you know, me hearing updated 2023 mixes of Help or Eight Days a Week is only going to send my mind reeling and make me desperate to find out what Babes in Black and I Need You in a 2023 mix is going to sound like, you know. It's a perfect scam. Well done, Apple. I am hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, it's clear they know how us Beatle fans work. And if you're one of those regular people who isn't looking to get all of the archive re-releases, or maybe you're just a person who it just wants a general Beatle ad addition to their vinyl collection, you know, you don't want to invest all that much, then this box set, both red and blue together, really are the best single item you could add to a collection. And I don't mean that just because it's got the best collection of songs or the best mixes, but also because it's got a crazy value for money. And I mean that in two ways. Like, again, you could just be a normal person who wants a new Beatle album and, you know, you spend, about, you know, 150 quid and you get these two together. That's all you'll ever really need for your casual collection. But also, if you're someone like me who was never able to get those box sets and the 50th anniversary re-releases the first time around, then this is a wonderful consolation prize. So I guess what I'm trying to say, folks, again, the longer and the short of it is, in terms of value for money, this is incredible for both old fans and new fans alike. But clearly I've gotten a little bit distracted because that sounds like I'm wrapping things up and haven't even started to talk about the blue album yet. So yeah, now that the red one's done, let's talk about the corresponding blue album. And I'm worried that I'm gonna have relatively little to talk about with this album, at least compared to the red half of this collection, because the blue album is mostly comprised of material that has been previously released. I mean, yeah, not in terms of what I physically own. In fact, I actually now own more of red because of the Revolver box set. But, yeah, none of this is particularly new, because I've been listening to it all on streaming anyway. And it is a bit annoying, folks. I mean, some of these mixes go for as far back as 2015, which is even before the first 50th anniversary archive edition, which is almost like a decade of technological advancement. And I get that they don't want to tick off the fans who bought those 50th anniversary box sets by completely invalidating their purchases, but then why did they put so much of Revolver on the red disc if they didn't want to make people who had bought box sets feel a little annoyed? I mean, shouldn't we like not be using Beatle content from the Obama administration? Like, we really should have got new mixes at least for All You Need Is Love, Hello Goodbye, and Hey Jude. I mean, come on. We got a new mix of I Am The Walrus, so it's not like they weren't pushing the boat out and like doing stuff that didn't need to be redone so it does feel a little lazy and cheap it would have been nice to have the whole box set just be a 2023 mix it would it would but that's not to say that there's any obvious lack of quality my tin ear definitely comes into play here i really can't tell that 
there's a, a dip in quality across the Blue Album, or that there's a, a raise in audio fidelity on the uh, new tracks or anything like that. But mm, it's 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 a mixed bag to say the least, folks. It really is. We do get some new mixes though. We do get mixes that aren't on the bonus disc, sorry, like uh, Fool on the Hill, Magical Mystery Tour, Revolution, and Old Brown Shoe. And they all are utterly divine. And for all intents and purposes, they are just as informative about the band as anything found on the Red Album. And two of those songs actually get their new album debut with this box set as well. As Revolution was not on the White Album box, and Old Brown Shoe was not in the Abbey Road box either. And this is where some of my review fears are coming to bear fruit, folks, because not only is there not a lot of new content on the Blue Album, but it's also easy to bitch about the stuff that I don't like. So again, I just want to reiterate, I love all the music on the Blue Album. The new music sounds particularly fantastic. I love having all of these songs presented to me in this fashion. I'm enjoying having the Blue Album as a physical thing in front of me. I'm Oh, I love having the clean mix of A Day in the Life on vinyl. Like, there is generally so much to love, but most of the compliments I could give it are generalised ones about the box set anyway, and nothing particularly unique to Blue. And if I had to compare one to the other, obviously, the Red Album is the superior release in this box set. Let's just be frank. Of course, I can't go any further without talking about the new mix of I Am The Walrus, I did mention it just. And for some reason, folks, this particular song has become the de facto bogeyman for these 2023 mixes. And as far as I'm concerned, the whole thing's been blown wildly out of proportion. So what's oh so different about this new mix? Well, basically, the levels are all over the place in terms of what you are familiar with. And the ending is pretty out there, to say the least. Basically, John's vocals and the orchestrations die down far earlier than what we're used to, and instead, the mix focuses on the radio-slash-spoken-word segments, as well as the everybody's-got-one vocal. And I don't know how much of this was down to the Mal AI bot and how much of that was down to human meddling, but what is clear that the mix is bold, it's different, and it's definitely worth singling out as the most unique selection on either the Red or Blue album. I mean, obviously you've got the aforementioned clean mix of A Day in the Life already, but having this mix on this Blue album actually does increase its value for money. It's a unique mix. That is very nice for any collector. But yeah, my immediate thoughts when I heard this song was... Not that it was trying to be some sort of needlessly radical or experimental mix, but that it was actually very calculated and purposeful. And my speculation is that this mix is an attempt to bridge the gap between, or suggest a connection between, I Am The Walrus, aka the peak of John's psychedelia phase, with stuff like Revolution 9 and John's three unfinished music albums aka the peak of John's avant-garde phase. Now, does this radically shake up the Beatles' canon or law in any major way? No. No, of course not. But the suggestion is very interesting, and it's a nice hint at maybe a more clear-cut through-line with John's weirder Beatles stuff. Um, it's not a narrative that I'm instinctively against. The weird thing is, though, is how people are reacting. I mean, for some folk out there, 
maybe for some of you listening right now even, the sky is falling and, you know, the Beatles have somehow sullied their reputation with this mix. Okay, first of all, it's their album. And as long as Paul, Ringo, Danny, Olivia, Sean and Yoko and Giles all agree that this material is official Beatle material, then it is. And they can put out whatever mixes they like. So can we please stop acting holier than thou, first of all? Secondly, though, it's not like this mix has in any way replaced either the original mix or any other subsequent mixes that you may like. You can go back and listen to the original stereo, the original mono, the first CD mixes, the Beatles love mixes, the 2009 mix, the rock band mix, the Beatles one plus mixes, they all still exist and you are free to listen to them at any time. The majority of them are available on streaming, the rest are probably on YouTube somewhere. So are we just never allowed to have a radical Beatle mix ever again? Like. The Sgt. Pepper and White album, 50th anniversary album, certainly had some changes on them, but obviously nothing as drastic as this. And I for one think it's fantastic that the band are still putting out stuff that still gets us to look at songs in a different way. Reinterpretation is one of the ways you can help extend the longevity of a band. And I don't know why that isn't being welcomed. You know, The whole point of these red and blue collections is to shake up established Beatle dogma and help continue the conversation and this mix does that. Yes, I understand that some people are worried that this will be the version that people will find on streaming in the future, but don't forget folks, there is a big bracket that says 2023 mix. So for anyone with a modicum of curiosity, they are going to check it out and learn the facts behind the song. Anywho, now that we've covered all of the new mixes of songs that we've heard before, it is now time that we cover the new songs added to these albums. And yeah, overall, I'm very pleased with the selection here. Right away, a lot of the immediately irksome holes and gaps and omissions from those original Red and Blue albums have been swiftly filled in rather succinctly. In terms of what I got... I bought the three-disc vinyl set, and so all of my bonus songs for both Red and Blue were presented all together on a separate third vinyl disc. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is a stroke of genius on the part of Apple, as it really does offer the best of both worlds. Because when it comes to people who are going to be buying the vinyl, it is those first, second, third generation fans, and they don't want their original experience from 1973 and onwards to be completely invalidated. So, since all the bonus songs are on a third separate disc, those original fans can go out and buy this box set and still have that same experience, albeit an updated one. And since all the bonus content is now on a separate vinyl disc, we can now advertise to those original fans that they've got an extra bonus disc. And for people like that, for collectors like that, of course, that is just going to be the most attractive prospect ever, isn't it? It's just basically going to be a big sign that says, please buy me. If they had reorganised the track listening to be chronological, like on other releases, not only would that have been a nightmare in terms of formatting and runtimes on the vinyl, but it would have pissed off the old school fans and they shrewdly dodged that. Well done to Apple. 
Plus, it meant that if you did just want to check out all of the new material, you didn't have to listen to all of those other songs or keep skipping. You literally could just put on the third disc. Anyway, the chosen songs were as follows. On the Red Album, disc three, side five, we have I Saw Her Standing There, Twist and Shout, This Boy, Roll Over Beethoven, You've Really Got a Hold on Me, and You Can't Do That. Then, on the Red Album, disc three, side six, so the second side, we have If I Needed Someone, Got to Get You Into My Life, I'm Only Sleeping, Taxman, Here, There and Everywhere, and Tomorrow Never Knows. Then, for the Blue Album, Disc 3, Side 5, we have Now and Then, Blackbird, Dear Prudence, Glass Onion, and Within You Without You. And finally, for the Blue Album, Disc 3, Side 6, the second side, we have Hey Bulldog, Oh Darling, I Me Mine, and I Want You, She's So Heavy. Once again, the Red Album has the most new mixes, but they are all found on Side 5, Side 6, however, is, once again, the Red Album has the most new material here. Most of those new mixes are found on Side 5. Side 6, however, is all previously released material, with only one new mix, a Rubber Soul song. Then the Blue Album has the quote-unquote new Last Beatles song, and a new mix from an album that was never represented on the original Blue Album, so it does kind of balance out somewhat. When talking about the omissions earlier on, I did mention that these 2023 releases largely got it right with their bonus material, and it is clear that they listened to fan reception when trying to correct the previous issues on the original release. No longer is there a main focus on what was a hit single, which means future generations will know that the band's album tracks and b-sides were as good as, if not better than their singles, we now have cover songs, which allows their earlier period and their standards to be fully represented, particularly the iconic Twist and Shout. We have more Revolver representation, but I'll get back to that. There's a lot more representation for the White Album, maybe still not enough, but it's still better than nothing. We now finally have a song from Yellow Submarine. Their quote-unquote full career is now being acknowledged with the inclusion of Now and Then. And George has a lot more representation. He gets two new lead vocals on the Red Album. Then, on the Blue Album, he gets Within You Without You, which gives him a nod for both Sgt. Pepper, as well as one of his sitar songs. Then, Paul finally gets a song on Abbey Road. And then, lastly, I guess the, the general theme I noticed was that there was a lot of John and George love specifically woven into these bonus discs. For example, on disc three for the Red Album, John has a lead vocal on half of the 12 new added tracks, with George getting another three. And then on disc six, the Blue Album bonus disc, John has over half of the new songs, and George gets two. Basically, on the bonus disc, Paul gets as many songs as George. Now, I don't know if this was done to redress some of the initial imbalances of the past, or because Paul feels like he shouldn't insert more of his own songs over his dead compadres, but it's interesting to say the least. It's not an issue, it's just something I noticed. Also, across all four sides, Paul only has one song that either begins or ends a side, meaning that all of the impactful moments are not going to be his. Again, it seems like a bit of professional humility on Paul's part there. 
and the only one where he does begin a side, he kind of had to because it's, I saw her standing there. So I'm not sure if that even counts. However, we are not done with talking about the track listing, folks. No, there is yet more to discuss because rather fascinatingly, Apple has decided to have the CD and the vinyl releases of the album have different formatting and track listing. Yes, this bonus third disc does not exist with the CD. And for the CD release of the Red and Blue albums, all of the new tracks are instead inserted chronologically. You know, in the way that I said it's good that the vinyls weren't. So, when you pop on the CD, you will not have the same experience as either the 73 vinyl release or the 2023 vinyl release. No, you are going to instead get something different. And possibly more significant, actually, because these CD releases are an exact match for what will be presented on the streaming version. And, at the end of the day, it is through the streaming platforms that this album is going to be going into the future. It's where we're going to get the new fans. And so it makes sense that we wouldn't want to confuse a potential future fandom with needless track listing calamities. Like, imagine being a fan and then going through the whole album in chronological order and then going into I Saw Her Standing There and then going into Now and Then and then going into, like, Hey Bulldog. It would be all over the place. I get why they haven't done that. If you're a young person looking for a young format, it's likely going to be in chronological order. And there are obvious benefits to this. I mean, when played in the correct order, then the holes that plagued the original vinyl versions suddenly vanish, and both albums together do feel like this one unbroken, comprehensive collection of songs, as opposed to, like, a collection and a half that you get with each vinyl. Like, despite actually owning the vinyl set and loving it, I have actively been listening to the streaming slash CD version more often, and I can't say at any time, like, it felt like there were any glaring gaps in the story. As radically different as this track listing is, it does emphasise just how complete and well put together this collection is. Like, if the Red and Blue albums originally in 1973 were good for normies just to have as part of their record collection, then even more so now, you know? Again, it's the best of both worlds. The old fogies who know all the history and the lore, they get their vinyl experience and a little bonus, and then all the young hipsters get their pure, standardised, unbroken Beatles experience. Plus, if a casual does notice that the track listings are different on different formats, well, again, just like the 2023 in a bracket, then that could be another potential catalyst that'll send them further down the rabbit hole, you know, of obscure Beatle mixes. I'm telling you, it's all planned out ahead of time. I mean, taking that even further, the decision to have the two formats be so different to begin with is just a clever business tactic, both for financial gain and posterity. Again, nothing is going to be accidental as they know that having these minor variations will have long-lasting effects. First of all, the superfans will get both versions, they'll buy both versions, so you, know, you, get, you get twice the revenue, and then they will be endlessly comparing them on forums and comment sections again so it keeps the fandom alive. Still, it's not like they got it perfect with either the vinyl track listing or the CD one. And let's just say, I have some notes. So, the whole thing with the CD is that it's meant to be chronological, right? Sure. 
the Let It Be stuff was released later, so that's placed later. That all makes sense, and that's how it is on the CD version. But then why oh why on the Blue Album bonus vinyl disc is everything fucked up? On side one, we start with Now and Then, then you have three White Album tracks out of sequence, followed by Within You, Without You, of all things, as the album closer. I mean, what a mess that is. Is there some sort of stipulation from Apple whereby the new single was not allowed to not be the first track in the set? You know, it's correctly placed last on the CD, so why not here? It's not like people who buy this set are at any risk of not listening to Now and Then because it's the last song. If they were worried about that, then they wouldn't have made sure John's last track on the whole set was I Want You, She's So Heavy. I mean, they were so hell-bent on having I Want You, She's So Heavy being a closer that it comes after I, Me, Mine. I mean, yes, it is a better closer than I, Me, Mine, but shouldn't they have stuck to the internal logic of the album at least a little bit? I mean, that way, George would have gotten another album opener with Within You, Without You, and then John would have got the closer with the new song. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? Although, I will admit... It is pretty cool that side two starts with Hey Bulldog. But yeah, overall, disc three of the Blue Album, it's a lovely addition, and I love having all of those songs like that, and it's fun with them being presented in a new order, of course, but fuck me, is it a mess. And that also kind of applies to the Red Album as well. The bonus album for the Red Album, side one, pretty flawless. But then we get to side two, and it's basically a reordered version of Revolver with If I Needed Someone at the start. Now, going back to the CD, of course, Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine is going to come first because it's chronological. That makes sense. So, you know, it'll be Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine followed by the rest of Revolver. But then, even on the CD version, Revolver is still out of sync. And then, like, While My Guitar Gently Weeps comes in before Obladi Obladar and... Fool on the Hill comes in before Magical Mystery Tour. So I, I really don't know what's going on here. Like clearly the order on the track listing was fucked up to begin with. So I probably shouldn't be putting so much emphasis on this. But I mean, if we're going to change things around forever, why not make it purely chronological and fix it? I don't know. Feels a bit weird. Also, as a point of track listing, certain songs do lose a bit of luster when say, acting as the third song on an album, rather than, say, being the ultimate album opener that it is, aka I Saw Her Standing There. Obviously, this is an issue with all compilations, and so it was unavoidable, but it's just another issue. <laughs> then we come to the topic of equality and symmetry between these two albums, and it seems now that Apple has dropped the pretense about these albums supposedly being equal. And I can't tell if that's a good thing, or if I'm now even more frustrated than ever. When this album was first transferred to CD back in 93, people complained because the Red Album could have fit on a single disc, but it was spread over two discs, like how the Blue Album had to be. And so people accused Apple of being cheap and forced people to buy a second CD when they didn't need to. Well now, there's a whole host of different issues. Starting with the good, for once Apple actually did something positive here and somewhat made amends, with the CD versions having a lot more songs on now, and it does fill up the space. It does give you a greater comparative value for money. So, you know, that's not an issue this time around. 
But again, it's not perfect. Originally, the Blue Album had an extra two songs, and now the Red Album's bonus disc has 12 songs, and the Blue Album's bonus disc has an extra nine songs, which means things have now gone the other way, with the Red Album having one extra song over the Blue one. And again, that would be fine if they all took up the same space on the album, but that isn't the case at all. And it just feels like they left off a final track on the Blue Album Disc 3 Side 2 for no reason whatsoever. I mean, they had options. They could have added another White Album song, like maybe uh, Helter Skelter, or maybe I've Got a Feeling with the whole AI thing going on. And overall, it just feels like a massive wasted opportunity. Like, oh, come on, they could have put like the inner light on there or something, which would have been another George song, another sitar-based tune, and it would have completed the Lady Madonna single. But if we're going to talk about missed opportunities, then we'll come to, why wasn't Free as a Bird included on this set? Yes, folks, we had a whole extra disc's worth of space to fill up that was meant to be a part of the Beatles' retrospective career up to 2023, and we just don't acknowledge any of the other work that the Beatles did in the 90s. Wouldn't that make it a little more comprehensive, maybe? Like, you could have started the Blue Album Disc 3 Side 1 with Free as a Bird and ended it with Now and Then. You, you know, again, you, you, you would have gotten the best of both worlds and it would have made it feel like no stone was left unturned. But, fuck me, it just so obviously feels like they didn't want to include Free as a Bird on this album because it would be an exclusive, it would be something to advertise for what will obviously be an anthology re-release in the future. Like, I, like this is obvious. They're not going to include that track on here because we, we won't buy the anthology box set. That's what they fear. Fuck off. Come on. Why did they just put it on? Like, they've avoided so many of the mistakes of the past and they've just made whole new ones. This feel, I feel like Ian Malcolm in The Lost World Jurassic Park or something. Like, when will people stop fucking with these dinosaurs? Oh, and by the way, I know I didn't mention Real Love being included on this set, but no one gives a shit about Real Love, so we'll move on to what will be my final complaint here. And that is the fact that I think they've gone a bit too far with the Revolver stuff on the Red Album bonus disc. Yes, not exactly the most unique hot take ever, but, I mean, look, I get that since the original 73 release, Revolver has gone through a massive cultural re-evaluation, and now it, rather than Sgt. Pepper, is considered to be the best album, even though Rubber Soul is. But yeah, I get that they were going to include a, a load more Revolver material on this album to kind of balance it out, but they've gone too far. They really focused on getting a lot more Revolver on this set, but they didn't do that for the White Album. You know, the White Album's still relatively underrepresented, obviously because of its size. And instead, what we now have with the Red Album is half of the Revolver album. Like, that is really cool. And if you don't have the Revolver album already, if you're one of these dirty casuals, then that's going to be a great value for money. I'm not going to argue that. It just feels a particularly egregious because a lot of us, myself included, have already just spunked a bunch of money on the Revolver box set about a year ago. And they could have just avoided this like uh, accusation of including too much Revolver material if they had just included Rain. But no, one of the Beatles' most interesting B-sides, that can't be included. And instead, we're going to have some stuff that we just bought last year. And yes, I know that I would have been buying both of these box sets regardless of the content anyway, but 
Like, calm down, Apple. We're not that crazy for Revolver. You know, it would have been nice maybe to get, like, a couple of other Beatles for Sale tracks on there or something. I don't, I don't know. It's just me. Of course, Revolver was horrendously underrepresented before, but now it's gone completely the other way. So hopefully in about 50 years, they'll take off two Revolver tracks, maybe put on Babies in Black and Rain, and then I'll be able to finally rest in peace. Right, we're actually approaching the end of the review now, folks. And again, I'm, I'm under that anxiety of the fact that I've said everything positive I want to say about this set, but in a far more succinct and erudite way than my complaints. My complaints have seemingly been dragged out far too long, and so I don't want you to end this episode under the misconception that I'm not in love with this box set and I'm not overwhelmingly happy that I have it. You know, I think this box set is overall a massive success. I think overall it has achieved all of its objectives. And I do recognise that this is going to be the launching pad for so many fans in the future. And what a launching pad they've got. Like These kids are so lucky they don't even know half of it. <laughs> and even though there are a few quibbles and points of contention with this box set, I do just want to, for one last time, emphasise how insignificant they are when compared to the technological advances made with this set, uh, the correcting of historical mistakes made in this set, the overall sound quality, the, the, the presentation, the box set. You know, all of it together is incredibly well done. And as far as this review is concerned, Red and Blue, the 2023 versions, are now official Beatle canon. They are back in the crowd, they're in the club, and... Well, they need to enjoy it whilst they can, because you know compilation albums and canon, they really go together. Also, I want to take a quick moment to thank my wonderful Patreon patrons, who I was not able to do this episode without, because they bought this for me. Yes, folks, I am, of course, indebted to my wonderful Patreon patrons, and the fact that they rather graciously have bought this for me does skew the review somewhat as well, but as always... I think it's quite obvious that I've pointed out enough flaws to, <laughs> to kind of circumvent any accusations of uh, me being bought and paid for by Apple. I reckon that's patently obvious by now. So yeah, overall, I just want to say I love this new Red and Blue album. I'm going to be listening to it far into the future, both on vinyl and on streaming. I hope you are as well. I hope we share the same opinions. If not, Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think about these red and blue albums or hit me up on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Thank you all, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. We've been discussing red and blue 2023 today. Uh, next episode, I think we're going to be starting Run Devil Run. I think it's time now, folks. So till next week, peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Harry, Harry Krishna. You know the drill, play us out, Denny.
affaires du Vietnam.